KOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, August the 9th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you this morning on a topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So tonight, if you live somewhere where the sky is going to be clear, between now and the 13th, pardon me, the 12th of August are the peak times when you can see the perceived meteor shower. It's the remnants of bits of ice and rock left behind by the comet Swift-Tuttle, last close pass, pass of the Earth back in 1992. It's one of the most active meteor showers of the year. It's an annual event, so you do need to be somewhere dark. You don't need a telescope, but you might be able to see what they call the zenithal hourly rate of between 100 and 150 meteors per hour. So for sky gazers, tonight might be a good night. And it does indeed uh, peak between now and the 12th. But this is going to be a particular good year to view the Perseids because the moon is only about 10% illuminated. So there you go for those of you looking to the sky for a bit of action. All right. I want to say congratulations and bravo to a young athlete from this province. Her hometown is Rigolette in Anatsiba. Her name is Brooklyn Wolfrey. She participated at the North American Indigenous Games, and then she made her way to Cologne, Germany, to participate in the World Dwarf Games in Cologne. So this is for people who have dwarfism, and she had an incredible event. So not only won the one gold medal that I was told about in singles badminton, but she hit the podium seven times. Four gold medals. So badminton singles, badminton doubles. She had a golden track at the 60-meter and 100-meter uh, distances. Won three bronze medals, soccer, basketball, 25-meter swimming. So welcome home and congratulations to Brooklyn Wolfrey. What a couple of weeks she has had. Great stuff. Uh, okay, there we go. Congratulations to the crowd at the Paradise Baseball School, known as Premier Sports Academy. Now they open up in February 2020. I mean, talk about timing, right? Just before the pandemic hit, and of course, slowed a lot of things down. But they stuck with it. And between their owner, Ryan Sweeney, and director of operations, Noah Anderson, they've got a lot of players in the hopper that they're turning into university or collegiate ball players. So there's a few that have already been named that are going to make their way down to the United States and across Canada to uh, play baseball at the collegiate level. So here's three in particular itemized in the news item. Ryland Andrews from CBS, Eli Dunphy from St. John's, and Nicholas Smith of Flat Rock among eight NL players who are playing or have committed to play college baseball in the next year after developing their game out at the Premier Sports Academy. Good stuff. You know me. Love a bit of baseball. All right. Mention this uh, very briefly to Ben Murphy on the VOC Morning Show this morning. Interesting hockey note, and even for casual fans of Canada's winter sport, the hockey world was absolutely shocked on this date in 1988. The unthinkable happened. The Edmonton Oilers traded Wayne Gretzky to the L.A. Kings. It was Gretzky, Marty McSorley, Mike Krushelinski heading down to L.A. for Jimmy Carson, Martin Jelna, the Kings' first-round picks in 89, 91, and 93, along with $15 million in cash. Uh, Gretzky traded. Will you ever see anything like that again in hockey? Probably not. All right, here we go. We got a Canada Games update yesterday. Uh, 2025 right around the corner. The key will be, of course, the uh, artificial turf soccer facility, the chain, pardon me, the track and field facility at large. But of course, the Aquarina needs a real upgrade. 
it wasn't even up to stuff for national standards to be able to host this type of competition. And, of course, it was built for the 1977 games along with the Green Belt Tennis Club. A lot of things going to happen inside there. It's going to close sometime in the fall, probably be closed for quite a long time. New diving boards, new platforms, new pool bulkheads, a clock for the swimming competitions, spectator seating will be new, new family change room, structural and mechanical upgrades, sorely needed. For, for the folks who are patrons of the Aquarina, that's going to be a great facility. All right, <laughs> got a couple emails. Maybe it's just spam, I don't know. But talking about sports, it's going to be a real blood sport today for Swifties. <laughs> Dave, do you have your pre-registration code? So, look, the biggest pop star on the face of the earth, I believe, is probably Taylor Swift, right? Only six states in Canada, all six shows to be at the Rogers Centre in Toronto. The uh, tickets go on sale today. I was spammed. I'm pretty sure it was spammed by a few. But also dared to bring up the Swift ticket sale today. I don't know why I mean dared to do it. But there's a conversation to be had with outlets like Ticketmaster and how they rule the roost and the just the unbelievable heavy hand and the big hammer that they swing when you try to get a ticket to see your favorite artist. But I bet you there are thousands of people in this province who are clicking madly to try to get in and get a Taylor Swift ticket. Anywho. Also want to say congratulations to the folks at the Newfoundland Insectarium. Have you ever been there, Dave? It's terrific. It's out in Reedville right by Deer Lake. They're going into their 25th year of business. So congratulations. The Hollets, the husband, Lloyd, not really a bug guy until he went to university, did a forestry course. But wife Sandy, she was always catching bugs. If you've ever been to the insectarium, you'll know that inside this warehouse, there are three floors of pretty exciting stuff. The butterfly garden is amazing. So if you've never been there and you're making your way in and around Deer Lake, head to Reedville and go to the insectarium. They think they're going to have their best season yet. Great. Okay. Maybe these are more important matters. Healthcare recruitment. You know, there are questions to be asked about how we approach recruiting healthcare professionals around the world. Inside the boundaries of the country, of course, it's been a real cutthroat bidding war for healthcare professionals. All the premiers and ministers of health and governments province, uh, province to province and in the territories, they know that one of their political challenges is to satisfy the needs and fill the vacancies of healthcare pros. Okay. When you look at around the world, there are some ethical questions posed by some entities about whether or not poaching healthcare professionals from countries that are already facing their own crunch, but we're doing it. So here's some of the numbers, the breakdown that we heard yesterday from the Minister of Health, Tom Osborne. So there's been over 40 physicians and over 170 nurses. Inside that 170, registered nurses, LPNs, nurse practitioners, those numbers are since the 1st of April. The vacancy rate, though, unfortunately, remains largely unchanged. They say we've seen a net gain. They're unable to tell us the number of, uh, whether it be nurses, LPNs, or nurse practitioners that have left or retired. Same thing with doctors. But it's good news for some communities that have been really struggling to get a permanent doctor back in place. So they've been filling the areas such as Bonavista, Bay Vert, Carbonaire, Clarenville, Fogo, Twillingate. There's going to be some work in the next six to eight weeks. Uh, you're going to see doctors back in St. Lawrence, Whitburn, New West Valley, Bay Vert, Springdale operating at least five days a week for the following 12 months. Okay. So the largely unchanged issue is because it also includes the number of nurses on the casual roster. And we know what that means. We also don't really understand whether or not we've been able to displace the very well-paid and much more control of schedule, the so-called travel agency nurse. I don't know, so-called, the travel agency nurses. So 
if we have stemmed the tide of the exodus we've seen through retirement of people leaving for other opportunities elsewhere around the country, around the world, I guess it's good news. When you talk about the numbers of uh, healthcare professionals that have been recruited, whether it be from India or Ireland or what have you, you know, I know the effort has to be put forward because the shortcomings in this province are glaring. You wonder how much money has been spent. We don't really ever get an update on that front. It doesn't come for free. And this is not poo-pooing the effort because I would imagine you have to turn over every rock everywhere to try to fill some of the vacancies throughout the entirety of healthcare professionals in every discipline here in the province. But those are some of the numbers. And I'm sure the people in those communities will be glad to hear this update on their behalf. So there are 18 job offers to Indian nurses. There's another 40 nurses from India that are so-called in the hopper. About 450 resumes also remain to be evaluated. So, again, good. You wonder what the cost is to have had what might be as many as 58 nurses from India. And welcome to the province. And I'm sure you're going to be certainly well needed as we try to deal with some of the vacancies and the work-life balance and the stress and the burnout that we hear so often. But there's some healthcare recruitment numbers updated. Inside that world, we've had a couple of chats with psychologists on the province. It's approaching the 11th hour for reaccreditation for the doctoral residency program at Memorial University. You know that the staff at the wellness center, counseling center, is only about half. And if we don't have the numbers of psychologists to act as supervisors and mentors for the graduates, we have ourselves a huge problem. If what, there's only two residency programs in the province, and one of them at Memorial University, and we spoke with the clinical psychologist on staff there. Her name just jumped out of my mind. I apologize. She was terrific on the show. Nice, nice to have an update there. So at Memorial University, this has been a red flag that's been flown for a number of years, and yet they haven't done anything to hire new psychologists, staff psychologists working a faculty model. So we're going to try to get an update because that's coming very, very quickly. You want to take it on? Let's go. Also in the world of healthcare, you know, when we hear these types of stories where a healthcare professional has operated with professional misconduct or unethically, it's a huge problem. And this story comes regarding a pharmacist who was the pharmacist in charge at the Shoppers on the Marchant Road. So she's been found guilty of professional misconduct. Two separate complaints. She had a her name is Susan Gillingham. She had a relationship between 2007 and 2019 with the patient, provided him with methadone outside of the doses provided with the proper documentation. She's also been charged and found guilty of falsifying and backdating in administration logs. So that's a problem, but I think the real reason I'm bringing it up is because when we have the conversation, which some people don't want to have, don't want to hear, but it's the reality of life on the ground, the type of drugs that are being used and abused, have led to addictions, and as many, at least 11 overdose deaths since the, in the last month. It's worth remembering that not every addiction began in the dark shadows of an alleyway. Many addictions, whether it began with the OxyContin craze uh, some 10, 15 years ago and the role that Purdue played in it, but how many addictions began on a prescription pad? So when we, so many people just have this thought in their mind that, you know, it's all street drug criminal activity that leads to someone finding themselves in the death spiral of addiction, but sometimes that's just not the way it is. It may have started very so-called innocently with a prescription to deal with 
pain or the aftermath of our surgery or whatever the case may be, but I wanted to put that out there for your consideration. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? Let's get her going. Okay, what's this say? Okay. We've been talking about and have had a couple of guests on that we've actually organized regarding Bill C-18, the Online News Act. So now we know that Facebook, Meta, who owns Facebook and Instagram, they have blocked Canadian news media content. So the racket politically is kind of fascinating to watch. So there's a bunch of media, media organizations that are playing this strategical ploy is they've asked the Competition Bureau to look at it, and they say it's very much anti-competitive. Now, regardless of your political leanings, if 80% of the advertising dollars in the country has been gobbled up by Google and Meta, or Meta, how do we deal with that? I mean, they're behemoths. They can't be tackled by any size media outlet in the country. Zero. Nobody has any chance against these massive tech giants. Now, the federal government's play here has been very, I've used ham-fisted in the past, I'll stick with it, didn't leave room for much of the negotiations that we saw some of the settlements arrived at in the country of Australia. But the Competition Bureau looks like a, pl a good place for this conversation to be had. So, again, it basically a lot of the political discourse is dependent on which party you support. You know, the liberals are idiots or the conservatives are on the right side or vice versa. But big tech is nobody's friend, right? They're not in it for you. And yes, if you click on Facebook with a, an article that links you back to VOCM.com, we get a click and get a hit, and they arrive at our website. That's a good thing for us. But of course, they also utilize that to their distinct advantage. So I don't know where a reasonable compromise lies, but I do know that this is a problem for media outlets across the country. Not just if Google and Meta, or Meta uh, block all news content, because advertising dollars and the need to innovate, find a new way to structure your business model, has become a real task, to say the very least, when 80% of the advertising dollars uh, ends up in the hands of those two massive entities. But if you want to take it on, we can do it. Now, this is a big story. So we know in the most recent federal budget, there was very made very clearly that there would be restrictions to access the refundable 15% clean electricity investment tax credit. And that was the requirement for an emissions-free electricity grid by 2035. Now, with a new document coming that is going to be enshrined in the regulations and the legislation coming from the Department of the Environment and Natural Resources, and of course that would be Gibo and Wilkinson respectively, they're going to tie the need for the provinces to have an emissions-free electricity grid by 2035 for access to billions and billions and billions of dollars of tax credits. This is obviously the government playing very, very heavy-handedly with the province. It's been referred to as a political hand grenade, and it pretty much is. Some provinces realize that they're going to make this transition, but between now and 2035, it's a very short time frame. Some provinces, like Alberta, Saskatchewan, say they're going to move towards it, but they've got like 2050 in play. In this province, we do pretty well on that front, right? But, of course, if we have Holyrood in place come 2035, and nobody really knows the future of that thermal generating station, but let's just say it remains in place. All those businesses that may find this province an attractive place to set up operations, whether it be with wind to hydrogen to ammonia, those tax credits for, you know, it's upwards of 30% of a tax break for those companies, but if the province doesn't abide by or adhere to these coming soon to be in trying to legislation regulations, we could be find ourselves in a real pickle. 
So there's another $3 billion in grants for renewable electricity pro uh, projects and technology upgrades. There's actually consideration to help fund transmission lines inside provinces. There's very uh, specific situations where that's available. So this could be a problem. They're also putting forward a timeline for natural gas power plants to be closed or fitted with carbon ca capture systems. So, yes, we know what the federal liberals think about the transition away from fossil fuels and coal in particular. But this is setting a very, very tight timeline. You know, Hollywood's going nowhere anytime soon in this province. I mean, we still have reliability concerns with Muskrat Falls, as we are all painfully aware. But the federal government just find themselves in a real tete-a-tete -tete with a variety of the provinces who are... They're not willing to play ball. Whether it be in Saskatchewan and Alberta, notably in Alberta, they've actually paused pro approvals of all new large wind and solar panel projects for the next six months while they try to figure it out, whatever that actually means. I don't know. Okay. Anyway, that's a big one. And with the not only that bit of uh, legislation that's soon to be updated, still complications with the clean fuel regulations. You know, we have got to hear more and something more forcefully from our six Liberal members. Parliament, uh, members of Parliament. It's unfair. It's unlevel. We will be paying more than other jurisdictions. That cannot be the case. We can't have it. Something has to give. Then it's the implications with the 30-odd million liters of fuel burned by Marine Atlantic, what that means for travel in and out of the province. So I put that back on the radar for you. Okay, very quickly, what do we got here? Oh, I was asked yesterday while we didn't uh, talk more about the government's move to do away with the 1.6-kilometer arbitrary number distance from school where you couldn't get on a school bus. It was the so-called family responsibility zone, and it's gone. 124 schools, 4,000 students will be able to get on the bus this year, regardless of how close you live to a school. Then the other 50% of for September 2024, uh, look, it's a good thing. I think some people were across that I didn't say exactly that it was a, a glorious decision because it's really one of the easy decisions to be made. And it's good that it's happened. But the other complications inside the K-12 system, you know, we talk a lot about healthcare, and I guess we should. But I don't think we get much in the way of clear updates about improvements for the numbers of teachers, permanent staff, uh, substitutes, and up and down the line. So, yes, it's good, but I don't think it's the, the everything. Uh, okay, so on an unfortunate <laughs> update... The local number to get on the program, the 2735211, it's not working. So if you've been trying to call that number, not having any success getting through, please do indeed use our toll-free number. Of course, and that is 1-888-590-8626. So don't bother calling the local number for now while we try to figure it out. Please call the toll-free number to get in the queue and on the air. All right. I don't even know what I was talking about for that. Oh, yeah, school. Now, I guess we're going to have to wrap our mind around what is an annual campaign to try to provide book bags, knapsacks, and back-to-school supplies. Everything shot through the roof, so the numbers of young people and their families that were struggling to get those required supplies, we're going to keep that on the front burner, see if we can do some work with VOSM Cares for their block-the-bus business. All right, let's going to talk here of the arts, but we're going to take a break. Oh, yeah. It's shocking, to say the very least that we heard yesterday that the RNC have charged a 14-year-old with second-degree murder for that person's role in the death of a 65-year-old woman in Mount Pearl. No details. They apparently were known to each other. They're looking for a blue recycling bag and any dash cam or home camera footage in and around that area in Mount Pearl, Smallwood Drive, and elsewhere. So I don't know, I'm sure what to say about it. No details available, but there is something quite shocking when we talk about 
a young teenager charged with a second-degree murder. All right, we're on Twitter. We're at VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show because you called the toll-free number to get in the queue and on the air. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, we spoke about this story a little bit yesterday morning. For over 20 years, Craig Pollard was the CEO with Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador, and now he's landed what he calls his dream job. He's the new executive director at the Atlantic Mayor's Congress, and Craig joins us on line number one. Good morning, Craig. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well. Thank you, sir. How about you? I'm not too bad. Just waiting to get my coffee. So, you know, we'll see how this goes. Ah, you're going to be fine. <laughs> right off the bat, congratulations. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's going to be a fun gig, I think. I'm really looking forward to it. Well, I mean, I don't know if you heard anything about what I said yesterday, but obviously you were a powerhouse advocate here in this province and did really yeoman service to municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador and the various municipalities that you represent. What does the Atlantic Mayor's Congress actually do? Is it a very similar advocacy group uh, working with the four Atlantic provinces or what exactly does it do? Uh, well, first of all, thanks very much for saying that. I appreciate it. Um, so the Atlantic Mayor's Congress is sort of an event-based organization. 30 mayors, mayors and wardens. So in other parts of Atlantic Canada, uh, there are councils that would have wardens instead of mayors. So a warden is elected by the council instead of the mayor elected by the population. So there's about 30 of them. They meet twice a year. That's the Atlantic Mayor's Congress. And it's a multi-day meeting where they discuss issues that they're all facing, issues that are facing the region as a whole, and they sort of work on how they can work with one another and learn from one another and how to address those things. So. It is a bit like M&L in that it's municipal leaders dealing with their own internal issues as well as issues that are just common to everybody. But it's not the same in that, you know, it doesn't have a conference with a trade show. It doesn't do a lot of the uh, heavy lifting advocacy that an M&L or a Nova Scotia Federation of Municipalities might do. Um, it doesn't have a bunch of staff. It has me. So it's it's a, a chance to network it's a chance to share ideas, and of course, it's a chance to engage provincial and federal politicians in those discussions. It's long been thought, and sometimes discussed in full or out loud, about cooperation, not only amongst municipalities in this province, but amongst and throughout Atlantic Canada. When you look at our representation in the federal government, we really have a paltry number of seats. I believe it's 31 or 33. I should know that number. But, you know, what does it say about cooperation because we find ourselves very much at odds on a variety of issues whether it be trying to deal with the healthcare crisis or trying to lure and attract business to one province or another regardless of the sector tech or otherwise talk about the importance of that level of cooperation which is kind of missing on many fronts because we share very similar concerns we have very similar uh, demographics of age we have very similar geography and up and down the line economically speaking how can we intensify the cooperation? Because I think if the smaller provinces find themselves consistently, not at odds, but not necessarily cohesive, we're kind of our own worst enemy. Yeah, and it's, you know, when you're a, a small fish in a big pond, you really sort of, lots of people just sort of focus on themselves. And that really is at the heart of the Atlantic Mayor's Congress. It's about coming together. It's about making sure that, uh, we represent a common voice to 
I'm going to say the rest of Canada, but essentially the folks in power, uh, and to do that in a coordinated way. And it's been a really, it's been a great success. I mean, just recently, the last meeting was in Amherst, Nova Scotia. Um, there was an amazing discussion on a thing, to be honest, that I find terrifying, the Chignetto Isthmus, which I had never heard of before until I went to this meeting. Uh, it's a strip of land, a small strip of land that joins Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. It, there's, it is the only uh, transportation link, ground transportation link, between the rest of Atlantic Canada and Canada. $15 million a day of goods go back and forth over the rail and road uh, connections on that isthmus. And it's eroding away. There are parts of that isthmus where only the rail bed is keeping the ocean away from the highway and the the land and the property on the other side. And this has been bouncing back and forth between provincial and federal folks for quite a long time. So 30 mayors got in a room in Amherst and decided this is crazy. This can't keep going the way it's going. And not everybody had the immediate impact. I mean, in New Brunswick, in Nova Scotia, parts of Nova Scotia, this is a an immediate tomorrow deal. Like, this is a big, big deal. There was municipalities there from Labrador. There was municipalities there from Newfoundland. There was municipalities there from PEI. It wasn't an immediate challenge for them, but they saw the overall impact on the region. And that $50 million a day uh, sort of rang bells for them. Letters went out, calls were made within a day or so. You've got the federal government responding to the premiers in Atlantic Canada who are saying we all need to come together and fix this. So there's there's some power in the political voice of having 30 local government representatives, mayors, gathering together in a room and standing together and saying, okay, despite everything else that's going on, this is important and we're all behind this. I just asked about cooperation. Now I'll put back on my selfish Newfoundland Labrador cap. With your experience here with MNL and the horsepower you bring to your new role, how is there specific benefits that we might be able to glean from the Atlantic Mayors Conference? I know the next, next or Congress, pardon me. I know the next Congress is coming up in Happy Valley Goose Bay in September 21st to the 23rd. So, is yep. there anything specifically? that this province may benefit from, not simply because of your uh, relationship to the province, but because of the work of the Congress? Uh, there's a tremendous amount to benefit, and I would encourage, uh, you know, we've got, uh, I think, almost 10 members from Newfoundland Labrador, because you had to be a member of the, the Atlantic Mayor's Congress to attend, but we're really putting a call out for more municipalities in this province to join, because there's tremendous benefit from the networking and not just, you know, this stuff is valuable too, you know, meeting your colleagues, meeting your peers, hearing about how they're handling situations and what successes they've had and learning from those. That's all good stuff. But there's really tangible stuff happening in other parts of the of the region around, for example, housing and what municipalities are doing uh, to support the unhoused and, and trying to do more than they typically done in the past and how to leverage federal and provincial government programs. There's lots happening around green energy and, and the transition and electrification. Uh, in PEI in particular, there's some amazing stuff happening where municipalities own their own utilities and are helping residents out with electrification. Um, so there's 
real tangible things municipal leaders from Newfoundland and Labrador can learn from their colleagues in the rest of Atlantic Canada uh, and vice versa. Like there's some very cool things happening here. Uh, we're hoping to have a presentation on guaranteed basic income in Happy Valley Goose Bay. Uh, it's a topic that the Congress has talked about several times and has had several um, long discussions about had experts in and have made sort of pronouncements about where they think it needs to go. Uh, but there's there's pilot projects happening here in Newfoundland and Labrador with youth. So there's things that others can learn from us as well. But there's just, uh, until you start talking to people, you don't often realize how much is going on. And that, that's the big benefit that I think our municipalities, the residents can benefit from municipal leaders attending these things. You know, we've struck uh, an arrangement with the rest of Atlanta, Canada, with the Physicians Registry for Mobility Issues, doctors who living and working in Nova Scotia to very easily uh, move their, uh, their operations and their skills to this province, for instance. One of the barriers in this country, which has always been very much based in territorial drawing a line and putting your foot down is about trade. You know, when we have, once again, relatively small economies of scale, if we're talking about the big scheme of things across the country, do things like trade barriers provincially, is that inside your ballywick in this role? Because I think there's a big upside. We need the federal government's guidance on this stuff because some of it is very arbitrary and silly. Some extensions have been granted about the amount of wine you can bring from BC or beer from New Brunswick, right. whatever. But it really does hamper the economy. And when we have this small scale, and the population-based Atlantic Canada, there's an opportunity there. There is. Uh, now there's always uh, there's always a concern to make sure that you're protecting provincial producers, companies that are you know making things locally here. Uh, but generally speaking, yeah, the, the freer the trade, the better off we'll be as a, as an overall economy. And that hasn't been a significant topic of discussion. Uh, at the Atlantic Mayor's Congress to date, although we are putting the Atlantic growth strategy and how the regional economy can grow and what role municipalities can play in that, that's on the agenda for Happy Valley Goose Bay um, because there's there's lots of stuff happening. I mean, you talk about cooperation. We've got the Council of Atlantic Premiers that meets on a regular basis where they're talking about, at their level, cooperation and collaboration between provincial governments Um Big discussions there around position recruitment and the sharing of positions and the breaking down of barriers. I, I think there's lots of discussion that can happen there around um, taking away trade barriers, with at least within the region. I think you're right. I think the federal government needs to play a bigger role in terms of you know, interprovincial trade across the country. But it is interprovincial, and the provinces need to sort of step up and have that conversation. I, I'd be very surprised if within the next two to three meetings we don't see more discussion of that at the Atlantic Mayor's Congress, simply because uh, in from most parts of the region right now, the economy is picking up. Things are happening. And our focus on economic development is shifting from sort of protection and maintenance to development and growth. So I think I'd be very surprised if it doesn't come up as a topic of discussion in the future, yeah. Because some cooperation is uh, based in necessity. I mean, for instance, things like yeah. the Atlantic Loop or helping Nova Scotia in particular move away from coal fire generation to using hydroelectricity coming from Muskrat Falls. And we've, everyone understands that deal and the complexities. But the next level of that is the Atlantic Loop. It looks like the feds are going to pay about two-thirds of the price tag, which is now in excess of $6 billion. There's a big opportunity for us here. Is that even on the radar around the rest of Atlantic Canada? Or are we hyper-focused on hydro because of the boondoggle that has been Muskrat? 
<laughs> I think on a day-to-day -day basis, we're probably more focused than others are. Uh, but I can guarantee you in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and other parts of Atlantic Canada, it's on the minds of business leaders, it's on the minds of municipal leaders, simply because they see the longer-term strategic benefit to the region of it. Um, I don't think it gets the same sort of detailed attention there that it gets here, but it's it's part of conversations for sure. Uh, and that's, that's all part of that... Uh, and we'd like to have a discussion about this Atlantic growth strategy. I think the Atlantic Loop is part of that. I think the green energy transition is part of that. These are these are high-level discussions that will have very specific implications for municipalities and what they can do for and with residents and the lives of residents. Uh, so mayors, local leaders need to be involved in those discussions. I think you're going to see an intensified conversation around energy if indeed these new regulations for access to these tax credits with the clean transition, so to speak, and the target now set by the Feds 2035 for an emissions-free electricity yep. grid for access to those funds. I think all of a sudden Atlantic Loop and similar conversations are going to make headlines around the rest of the Atlantic Canada just based on that and that alone. Uh, final thoughts to you, Craig, before we say goodbye. Well, I, I appreciate the interest in ANC. I think uh, it's it's been a really good venue for municipal leaders to meet and share ideas for the last 20 years. Uh, I think they hired me because they'd like to see a little more advocacy, uh, a little more rigor in sort of the discussion and that sort of thing and raised the bar. So I'm very happy to be doing that. Uh, I'm doing it through my own company, Public Strategy Inc., which is a, a policy advice government relations firm. Uh, it's been quite it's been an interesting transition, speaking of transitions, from MNL to this, but I'm having a really good time. Uh, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to come on and chat. I appreciate making time for the show. Congratulations and good luck, Craig. Stay in touch. Will do. Thanks very much. Take good care. Bye-bye. That's Craig Potter, of course, the new executive director at the Atlantic Mayor's Congress. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, topic entirely up to you. A reminder, to access the local number now, we knew this was all coming, that area codes would have to be included to uh, make space on the network, not just this radio network, but, of course, the telephone network. So if you want to dial 273-5211, please do indeed dial the area code first. So 709-273-5211. I think I know that number. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's keep it rolling with the EDs. Join us on line number three is the Executive Director at the Eating Disorder Foundation. That's Paul Toomey. Morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and thank you so much for taking my call this morning. No problem. Uh, I just want to take the opportunity this morning to promote our bingo. This is bingo night at uh, Jackburn Regional. Drive-in bingo. Our doors will open, or our gates, I guess, will open at 5.30 this evening with bingo starting at 7. We've got a guaranteed $2,500 in prizes, plus 
uh, some 50-50 games, Nevada tickets, uh, the usual fare. We have a food truck on site. Um, and it should be a great evening. And uh, by the look of the weather, we're, we're, we're good to go for this evening. So uh, really appreciate everybody coming out, as as you know, and most of your listening audience knows. We, we went from uh, a weekly bingo last year back to a once-a-month bingo this year. And uh, this is the second of three that we'll be hosting. So uh, we'd appreciate the support. Uh, and the money that we raise goes directly to our programs and services to support families and individuals who are dealing with this deadly mental illness and eating disorder. The conversation, I think, like many areas of mental health, has improved or has been more open and honest because those are the types of things that have made it so difficult for people to acknowledge they need help and then consequently to go get help. With the increased numbers of people you're seeing or helping and families that you're uh, dealing with, what has that meant for operational costs? Like, How has that not changed? Well, uh, I think you're right, Patty. I mean, the, the conversation has certainly improved. There's a lot more open talk. Uh, we'd like to think that people can feel they can call us at any time and we'll be available to, to provide the support. Uh, right now, we're working with, with one counselor. Uh, however, we are looking at making some changes that will uh, end up counselors part-time, that we're going to make that a little bit more permanent come September, and we are uh, seeking uh, seeking applications from individuals to uh, to join us to so that we can increase our counseling services and make sure that it's readily available whenever individuals need it. And, uh, and we think that that's critically important. Obviously, rising costs are there. Uh, to get the qualified people that we need for this type of a position, we're going to have to pay the going rate. Uh, we're going to have to compete with everybody else. So uh, certainly it will have an impact on our operations, but we recognize the need. We know the illness is still very serious, and it's growing within our community. So we'll be there to support the families and the individuals who need us. Last time we talked, it was very shortly after the Towards Recovery final report came down, you know, to acknowledge where we are with the implementation of the very recommendations. Have you had a chance to digest it any further and thoughts how it impacts your group? Uh, well, uh, you know, I certainly think a lot of the recommendations have been been very uh, very supportive of what we do. Government has cooperated with us. We've recognized that there's a serious need to improve services and supports for binge eating disorder, and government has been there with us on that. So that part is great. But as uh, and I and I've said this openly before that uh, it was a great general report and recommendations are fine. But we now to get. If there's further uh, action plans to come, they need to be specific. Like any type of a business, we need to set specific targets, and then we need to be held to those targets and what we're going to achieve. So I look forward to seeing that in future reports, that we see some specific targets for improvements to the services we offer uh, throughout the area of mental health and addictions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we don't have a way to measure success of a policy, there's no way to gauge whether or not the policy needs to be massaged or nuanced or changed in full. So we just need a bit more measurables. And I know that might be uh, easier said than done. 
but well, anything worth doing is going to be somewhat difficult. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's not going to be easy to do, and a lot of people are going to have to work hard at it. And uh, uh, at the risk of getting political, uh, the politics has to be taken out of it. We can't be putting numbers out there just for the sake of uh, of saying we have numbers and we've achieved targets. They've got to be specific, and they've got to be hard targets that we can reach out for. I appreciate the time this morning, Paul. Give this details one more time for a little bit of BINGO tonight. Yes, sir. Uh, gates open 530, Jackburn Regional down on Torbay Road in Torbay. Bingo starts at 7. Uh, I think it's 12 games we play, guaranteed $2,500 in prizes, food truck on site, so come and uh, make a great evening out of it. And just one last thing, Patty, our 50-50 ticket sweep, the final, the next draw is next Tuesday, the 15th, so there's still opportunity to get 50-50 tickets by calling our office. Look forward to uh, an update when the time comes. Appreciate the time, Paul. Good luck with thanks, it all. Pa- thanks, Patty. Always appreciate the time with you. My pleasure. Okay, bye. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Paul Toomey, ED at the Eating Disorder Foundation of New and Labrador and you know there's been plenty of discussion in the community about you know the towards recovery uh, report and what have you and the concept of measurables and real data to see exactly where we are because if we can come up with it with a backlog and hip and knee replacement then we should be able to do a little bit better to give us some real hardcore data and the compilation of because we know it's not just in the department of uh, health and community services where mental health numbers and programs will be tracked and there are other uh, government departments and organizations that deal with mental health related matters you know to bring them all together to see exactly where we are, how we're doing, I think is pretty important. There's also conversation out there, and this has been happening for a while. I don't think there's been any move or any real concrete discussion about it here provincially. But we know that part of the conversation regarding stigma with mental health-related matters is to try to talk about it exactly like we talk about physical ailments. I, I get that, and I guess that's the backbone of how and the rationale for putting the new mental health and addictions facility alongside the health sciences, right there in that complex. But is there a need, given the prevalence of, even though it seems counterintuitive when we're trying to include those conversations in the same breath with the same tone and tenor, is there a chance that a minister of uh, mental health would be beneficial? Probably so. Does that kind of fly in the face of folks who are trying to make the conversation very, very similar, if not identical, regarding mental and physical health? I don't know. What do you think? Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Last week, we heard that the federal government was putting $700,000 in the hands of organizations such as End Sexual Violence NL to establish and to expand their crisis hotlines and some programs and services. To get some more details and how this money is going to hopefully improve things on the ground, we're joined by Sandra McKellar with the Newfoundland Labrador Sexual Assault Crisis and Prevention Center. Good morning, Sandra. You're on the air. Uh, Good morning. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. So before we get into exactly what the impact of that monies will be, just talk about the uptick in the numbers of calls you're fielding at your office. Is that Sandra just dropped out? Yeah, we'll see, we'll see if we can uh, recover Sandra, get her back on the line. Not sure what happened there right off the top. We will get the details coming from Sandra McKellar. Of course, she's the executive director down at the End Sexual Violence Newfoundland and Labrador Group. You know, everybody knows it's long been a problem. Gender-based violence, predominantly women, of course, some men are on the receiving end, but the pandemic really put a sharp focus on it and made the issue and the circumstances faced by folks in dangerous situations even worse. 
So when we talk about an injection of money, of course, money is helpful. Money, for some people, is the be-all and end-all. But the conversation has to extend beyond increasing or expanding services for hotlines. It's got to get down to, and I know root causes may be sometimes overused and overdone, but knowing, exa- knowing exactly how these issues manifest themselves, how they happen and protections for, dealing with whether it be education, awareness, and preventative programs, it's all part of the conversation. Now we're going to rejoin Sandra McKellar on line number six. Good morning, Sandra. You're back on the air. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay, so let's start at the very beginning about what we've okay. seen. My suggestion is that the pandemic made not only hyper-focus on this issue, rightfully so, but it also made things much worse for people living in dangerous situations. What have you seen in the recent 12 months, and what's the implication of the pandemic for the numbers of calls and people you talk with at End Sexual Violence, or the Newfoundland okay, Sexual so. Assault Crisis Center? Oh, yes. So, yes, we live in a post-pandemic environment, but reality is some of the things that were put in place during the pandemic to protect people um, didn't necessarily work that way, depending on the situations in which people existed. For example, there were no sort of um, windows of opportunities to get out when we were in lockdown. Right. In terms of of getting out, getting a break and also sometimes making connections, because as one person said, this is where our text chat became really important. It's, It's difficult to eavesdrop on a text chat conversation. We also don't uh, take sort of identifying things. So people know that they can reach out, they can ask for support. And one of the things that came over time is because there is such a need in the province that we are a support line, but people are seeking extended support beyond the crisis. So they, there are repeat callers. And we are very, you know, clear in terms of the support we can provide, but we also have to pay attention to the services that they're seeking. So that's also helped contribute to the high number of individuals who were contacting us on the line. We also saw patterns in terms of uh, older individuals who may not have reached out in the past that they began to do so. We saw a need for education because, for example, there are generational differences when it comes to languages. What does you know, sexual assault mean? What does it look like? Depending on the the generation, what does sexual violence? And we found that sometimes just starting where the person's at and saying it also includes this was really helpful because as one person said, sometimes I'm not sure and I don't want to look stupid by asking the wrong question. There are no wrong questions. It is all about education. It's all about safety. It's all about knowing what is out there and available to support others. When people hear or say sexual assault, they probably have one very specific instance in mind. So when you say, you know, what this, the so-called stupid question, of course, there are none. What are you what are you what are you saying about the differences and how people experience it? Just help me understand that thought that you put forward okay. about it's not the same for everybody, which I completely understand, but just expand on that for the listener. So for example, um our older um callers, um when they talk about sexual assault, they're talking generally about rape or abuse of some kind. 
right? Um, we also know that uh, sexual violations, uh, sexual misconduct, however you want to put it, any unwanted sexual interaction, right, that is trust upon the person, that is a violation. That is violence. But people uh, sometimes say, I'm not sure. So I didn't want him to, you know, forgive my language. I didn't want him to touch my butt, but he did. Would you consider that? I'm like, yes, it is. It is your body, your personal face. Any kind of unwanted touch is a violation. And, of course, you know, sometimes people oversimplify things by simply saying, well, if you find yourself in a dangerous situation, simply leave. But that's just not... Not really. A, very it, simplistic. It's, it sure it's very, is. It's, very it's hard to deal with. Yes, and it's also in some ways it it falls into our line where we you know we look at victim blaming. Why can we not say it is wrong? It is uh, illegal. However you want to put it, to engage in a behavior and activity that is unwanted by someone else. We say things like, "Well, cover your drink." Or always buddy up. How about it is illegal to spike someone's drink? It is illegal to engage in unwanted touch. You can be arrested. Put the blame where it needs to be. 100%. Not about what the person wears or how they wear it. Uh, no is no. A very uh, is no. <laughs> also, a, a long running tired trope about what someone wore. Okay, and, and then you mentioned the type of services they may need. So, we, once again, people might automatically go to, well, I need a spot in Iris Kirby House. I need an emergency shelter. What other types of supports are there if people find themselves in a dangerous situation? Okay, so again, depending on the situation, reaching out to end sexual violence, we have the crisis support line uh, where we provide information, where we provide in listening ear, where we listen. We also have the text chat. We also look at options in terms of, depending on location, if there is a need for accompaniment, depending on what it is, whether it is to the, the sexual assault nurse examiner program, which we know is at St. Clair's, and there are other things around, or to go to the RNC. We know that if, depending on where the person is in their journey, they may say, you know what, I never thought about it, but are there legal options? We have an ongoing partnership with PLAN, and that's through the Journey Project. They do excellent work. They will be able to unpack some of the questions that people bring to them when it comes to legalities. They also do some, they do work around intimate partner violence. So I guess what I'm trying to get across is that there are a range of services. And yes, we advertise and we put it out there, but generally when people are in crisis or they're really struggling, they don't necessarily remember so it is always ensuring that we have the information out there and in as many forms as possible so that it is, it is accessible. Because being available doesn't always mean accessible. So we need to, on our end of the spectrum, we need to ensure that whenever we put out the information, it is made as accessible to as many as possible. And that everyone is aware that this is not judgmental. This is about providing support. This is about providing a venue to ask questions. 
when I mean data is important and stats are important but behind every statistic whether it be a percentage increase in the number of calls or the percentage of uh, women in particular who would be victimized by some form of sexual abuse but every one of those stats is a person every one of those stories is different the implication on them themselves as an individual their family their friends they're all slightly different and all as important as the other so data is great stats are still people last one we talk about expanding services with an injection of cash in this case federal government money of seven hundred thousand dollars when i try to talk about root cause stuff to try to make a market improvement as opposed to react to what people are in these circumstances i'm not even sure what the question is but how do we get back to talking about before it happens. Is it because of education campaigns, whether it be in school or public awareness campaigns, or what do we need to do to roll back the percentage increase of calls to your community or your organization, to roll back the prevalence of gender-based violence in the province, women or men? So how do we have that conversation? I think part of it is truly starting at basic when we talk about relationships. What does a healthy relationship look like? Sometimes people get really distressed when we talk about relationships because there is an assumption that we're going to get into sex at some point, but it is about healthy relationships. It is about respect. It's about understanding one's personal boundaries and a sense that everyone has value. And that starts very young. You know, rather than giving, you know, Aunt Clarice a hug, if you're child says, no, I don't feel comfortable. How about a high five? It can be as basic as that, or it can be around, you know, when, when individuals, when teenagers start dating, you know, I want to, but my boyfriend doesn't want to. Who do I listen to? Your boyfriend. <laughs> okay. Or I want to, and my girlfriend doesn't. Who do you listen to? If the person is not sure and they're not saying, yes, unequivocally, this is what I want, there needs to be that kind of respect. So it, it is a multi-focused, multi-pronged approach that looks at every step of it, starting with prevention and going right up to support. Yeah, so things like the body safety course that is being promoted, there's going to be a pilot project that should be expanded throughout the entirety of the K-12 system with age-appropriate content. But the the respect business and what your comfort level is, it makes me think about a video uh, that I've seen many times uh, passed around on the Internet. about, And it's not about sex. It's about comfort. So the child, yeah. upon leaving the classroom, would tap one icon or another on the, on the wall, whether or not they wanted a hug or a high-five or a handshake or an elbow bump or a twirl or a twist on their way out of the classroom with the interaction with their teacher. So that's not about sex at all. That's about what no. my comfort level is. And when you know that, well, Johnny in front of me wanted the high five, but I'm happy enough with the hug, people, it just seeps into your subconscious that comfort is different for everybody. Yeah. And recognizing that probably extends into this conversation regarding the unfortunate prevalence of violence. So, And it says so much. It really does. It's good to have you on the show, Sandra. Would you like to say anything else before we say goodbye this morning? Yes, I would like to encourage anyone who is in need of support to please reach out. We have the telephone, we have text chat. Our telephone is 24-7, and we are working at expanding our text chat. We know we are expanding at doing some um, tele counseling, etc., which we will be looking at doing a pilot project in Labrador. We really work to ensure that 
all aspects, all regions of the province gets included. We also recognize that each region has unique needs, and that's why we're doing it slowly. We're trying to do it consistently so that um, everyone feels heard and addressed. I appreciate the time, Sandra. Stay in touch. Okay, thank you very much. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Sandra McKellar is the Executive Director at the NL Sexual Assault and Prevention Centre. Let's take a break. When we come back, Beverly wants to talk about summer jobs. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Beverly, you're on the air. Yes, hi. I have a speech and hearing problem, so I hope you can hear me. I can. You go right ahead. Uh, we're seniors. We're in a townhouse. We need some painting and sanding on my stairs going out, and we can't do it. We have all the supplies and everything. We need to find somebody. Are you looking f- to pay somebody to do this, Beverly? Okay. There's a couple of groups out there that have summer students that actually do this type of work. There's one group at Memorial University, and I think they're simply called Memorial Student Painters. There's another group that's been in place for a long time called Student Painters NL, and that would be high school students predominantly, I believe. So we can indeed connect you with some of these groups. Do you, by chance, use Facebook, Beverly? I got Facebook. Okay, so they, these groups will absolutely have a page on Facebook. So if I was you, I'd open up my Facebook and I'd go to the search and I'd put in NL Student Painting and Staining for one. Okay. I'd also put in Memorial Student Painters to find their Facebook page. All right. And I think there's one more called Student Painters NL. All right. I didn't know about that. (laughs) Yeah, no problem. So happy to help. We also have a number for you. David just uh, gave me the number for the Memorial Student Painters, if you want to take it. Yeah, just a second there. I lost my pen. No problem. Uh, Yeah, I found a pen. Okay, so it's area code, of course, 709. 709. 689. 1-8? Yep, so 709-689-1718. All right, they're wonderful. Yeah, let us know if you have any luck. If you don't, we'll go back to the well and see what we can do. All right, and do you have a chat line on, uh, on Twitter? Do I? Yes. Uh, do, do you mean do I accept uh, private messages on Twitter? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah, my Twitter is open, so you can send me a direct message there if you want to give me an update. And we're an easy one. We're VOCM Open Line. I tried to find it, but I couldn't find it. <laughs> yeah, that's our handle. As simple as that. So you should be able to go to the search, and once you put in VOCM, you'll come up with a bunch of different Twitter accounts. But mine is there. It's uh, just VOCM Open Line. All right. I appreciate that. My pleasure. Let me know how it goes. Thank you. You're welcome, Beverly. All right. Bye-bye. There we go. Hopefully that works. All right, uh, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number three and say good morning to the Conservative Member of Parliament, elected in and serving the folks of Cumberland, Colchester. That's Dr. Stephen Ellis. Dr. Ellis, you're on the air. 
Hey, good morning. I heard uh, from my great friend Clifford Small from uh, Costa Bay, Central Notre Dame, that people have been talking about the Isthmus of Chignecto. Yeah, uh, we had a conversation with Craig Pollard, who's the new executive director of the Atlantic Mayor's Congress, and he brought it up as a major issue of concern in your region. Because, of course, that's a very small piece of land connecting New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. It's in peril, basically because of rising sea levels. Paint us a picture of exactly where it is and the connectivity it represents and the peril that it faces. You know what? You've captured it very well. It's the, the piece of land that connects uh, Nova Scotia to the rest of Canada or Canada to, to Nova Scotia, and it uh, joins us to New Brunswick. So that's what the isthmus is. It's not terribly wide, but uh, in that uh, actual piece of land, what exists is the infrastructure of the Trans-Canada Highway, of course, the CN rail line, and tele- telecommunications and power lines. And, and dikes have been built there uh, hundreds of years ago, uh, depending on who you ask, but probably by the Acadians, uh, to actually uh, drain the water that was there previously and uh, keep back the sea. Of course, we all know that, uh, that sea levels are rising somewhat, and uh, the likelihood of breaching the dikes now is significant. The biggest problem that exists, of course, is that the remediation of the dikes is going to be expensive. Uh, it started off at uh, a maximum of $300 million. Now it's $400 million. Uh, and the, the, the issue really is related to the fact that uh, Premier Blaine Higgs and Premier Tim Houston of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, respectively, believe very strongly that the federal government is responsible to pay for that cost. And uh, I've had a conversation with Dominic LeBlanc, which uh, didn't turn out favorably, uh, of course, the, uh, the intergovernmental affairs minister. Uh, and basically, you know, I asked him, you know, could, you know, do you think there's movement on this? Uh, and, uh, you know, could we use money from the infrastructure bank at a low interest rate or zero interest rate? He thought about that a few minutes. And he, I'll, I'll warn you, he used some vulgar language. He said, F no. F the provinces. They have an F in surplus and they can F and pay for it themselves. So I think we know where this is going. Uh, and sadly, uh, as you know, the two premiers now have launched a, a lawsuit uh, to understand who's responsible for paying for this. Well, Trans-Canada Highway is clearly under the authority of the federal government. If it was just maintenance and upkeep through uh, Terranova National Park, it would be them. So I'm not sure how they differentiate this particular issue. The former nationalized CN Rail, pretty clear on that front as well. Um, give us or paint us a picture of, you know, connectivity is obvious, but if we're talking about the Trans-Canada and CN Rail, we must be talking about tens of billions of dollars of goods going across the Isthmus in, in addition to the risk it faces uh, based on the unstoppable force that is water. Absolutely. You know, your, your point is very well taken. What we know is that the trade across the isthmus is about $35 billion per year, uh, so absolutely astronomical. And we know that uh, with the recent flooding we had here in Colchester County, uh, the, the CN line in our county, which of course connects Halifax to the rest of Canada, uh, was uh, undermined, and it took five days simply to fix that. So we know that if the dikes were breached and there was a massive destruction, the, the amount of time to fix it would be incredible. And I think the other the other example we have is related to the uh, the disaster that happened in British Columbia on the Sumas Plain or Sumas Prairie. Uh, and we know that the remediation there uh, cost hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. So to go ahead and, and not uh, use, as, you know, as we may say, the ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure uh, when it's clearly the responsible of the federal government, I think, is uh, is a huge mistake in putting uh, 
uh, certainly uh, us here in, in the Maritimes in a significant uh, position that's that's untenable. We also know that there's there will be significant flooding in the town of Amherst and in the town of Sackville, New Brunswick. So uh, those are huge issues that we can't underscore enough, and the federal Liberal government needs to uh, to do something about it. Interesting. I mean, as Atlantic Canadian, I'm apologizing for my ignorance as to exactly where this is. Is this the Northumberland Strait? Well, uh, on one side is the Northumberland Strait, on the other side is the Bay of Fundy. So that, uh, that's what forms the borders of uh, the riding that I represent, Cumberland, Colchester, with New Brunswick being uh, one of the borders of that riding as well, and, and the spot between uh, Truro and Halifax, the other border. So it's, it's a very interesting uh, riding in the sense that it is surrounded on two sides by, by water, which that is what forms the, the isthmus itself. And not to split hairs, but this must be a sub-basin of the Bay of Fundy then. Well, in the in the sense, as I said, the Bay of Fundy, uh, the headwaters come up on on the uh, western flank, and the Northumberland Strait on the eastern flank. Uh, so it puts an, an interesting perspective. There was at one point, uh, <laughs> many years ago, a, uh, a desire to create maybe a, a Panama Canal-like uh, structure through the middle of it uh, to connect the Bay of Fundy and the Northumberland Strait, uh, but that didn't work. There was also a railway there at one point, but um, but the, of course, as you well know, the issue now. Is is this land is is below sea level? If the de- dikes are breached, uh, then we're going to have massive flooding and destruction and, and interruption of interprovincial trade. What about energy uh, implications? Uh, is this the home to uh, above ground transmission lines? Absolutely, it is. Yeah, and and certainly, you know, there's talk about the Atlantic Loop, and of course, uh, that infrastructure would have to cross there as well. There are uh, many wind turbines there also, which, uh, you know, you certainly could have undermining of their base and, and toppling of those uh, structures as well. So uh, there's farmland that exists there, very fertile farmland. Uh, so, yeah, there's, and there's many businesses that exist uh, in that uh, area that's uh, below sea level. How long is the isthmus itself? What distance are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, realistically, it's probably about 35 kilometers from, I would maybe even up to 50 from where the flooding would begin on the Amherst side all the way uh, into uh, Sackville, New Brunswick. Uh, so, yeah, it's a stretch of, wa- stretch of land, about 50 kilometers perhaps in total, uh, and the, the width is probably around uh, 20 at its, at its minimum. So it's it's not an insignificant portion, uh, you know. But again, you know, when you look at some of the experts around trying to feed ourselves here in Nova Scotia, if we were cut off from the rest of the world, we only have about three days worth of food. And of course, uh, those uh, listeners in Newfoundland and Labrador well know that better than we do here in Nova Scotia. That if you're cut off from the rest of the world, it becomes very expensive to get food in. Does this get tackled under, I mean, we talk about the infrastructure bank, and I don't know if there's a, you know, a sub-portion of the bank that is very specifically about climate change adaptation and or climate change-related infrastructure improvements. Is that how this gets tackled, under that envelope of climate change? Because there's a vast difference with how they approach infrastructure on a variety of fronts. We could talk about high-speed rail is one, which has implications for emissions, but is this how this gets tackled on the federal level, is inside infrastructure specifically regarding climate change adaptation? Well, certainly what uh, what has happened already is is reluctantly Nova Scotia and New Brunswick uh, agreed to apply for federal funding uh, to actually help with, with this issue th- through mitigating the effects of climate change. So that is the avenue it would happen. 
Uh, it's just right now, I say just, but the issue really is related to how much the federal government will agree to fund. And at the current time, they have said that they will fund 50%, which then leaves, of course, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia funding uh, 25% each, which, you know, you say, okay, well, that's not a bad deal, but that's $100 million to each of the provinces if it's a $400 million cost. And also, again, if we believe in the constitution of, of our great country, that we would suggest that the federal government is responsible for interprovincial uh, trade routes, which, of course, you've correctly pointed out, would include the CN rail line and the Trans-Canada Highway. So that is really where the uh, where the issue lies, is that responsibility. And, uh, you know, I think we all feel very strongly that this is an interprovincial trade route. Very quickly, before we let you go, Dr. Ellis, I unfortunately, once again, I don't know much about your background, but given the fact that we're talking about an MD doctor, I, I'm assuming, right? Yes, sir. Okay. Yes. So given that fact, you must have some sort of role on the Standing Committee on Health. I, I do, yes. I'm the, the vice chair of that committee. I'd like to pick your brain a little bit. We've heard your leader talk about the implementation of a blue seal to allow people who are newcomers to the country and the, try to fast-track their credentials to get into the system. And we know that many times we'll be told repeatedly that the federal government's role is for healthcare transfer dollars, and the jurisdiction is up to the province with how they handle it. But we've got ourselves a problem here. We've got basically more money coming into the delivery of healthcare as opposed to the restructuring of universal healthcare. Consequently, we've got ourselves a bidding war. And that's where a lot of the new money is going, is simply for re remuneration for healthcare professionals. What do you think the federal government's role should be on this? Because I think without federal guidance, the bidding war continues, more money will be spent, and the improvements will not come. You know, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. You know, what we need to understand is that instead of the environment that the federal liberal government has allowed to be created of this bidding war and provinces having duplication of efforts, we need to have a collaborative effort. And the collaborative effort needs to uh, also be underpinned by allowing those who are internationally trained and have international experience to be able to show uh, what their credentials are, uh, to be able to gain licensure here in our country, and also for those uh, who choose to work in different provinces, much like the Red Seal program, that if you have gained your Red Seal in, in Newfoundland and Labrador, then you could use it elsewhere as well. But if we don't stop the, uh, the animosity that exists between the federal government and the provinces, and, and I've had the opportunity to meet with uh, five of the 13 provincial ministers of health, and I can tell you there's a significant appetite to have a change in the animosity that exists between the take-it-or-leave-it attitude of the federal liberal government now and, and that which we would propose as a conservative government, uh, hopefully in the not-too-distant future. And that's a human resources issue, right? Because in fairness, there hasn't been much of a, an addressing these structural deficiencies inside of healthcare since Tommy Douglas. There really hasn't. And we're talking successive governments all the way back to that day. So this is not necessarily a liberal or a conservative thing because governments will change hands. And when people get sick, they don't really care who's the governing party. They need access to healthcare in a timely fashion with an accredited professional. So that's where we, you know, sometimes, and I know I'm talking with a politician, and that's not a criticism, but some of these conversations, backing out politics and sticking with policy is going to be to our ultimate benefit because, once again, you'll have supporters of your party in your federal riding. You'll have people who will vote for other parties. When they get sick, they don't even care who their MP is. They want to know who their MD is. You are absolutely correct, you know, and, uh, you know, one of the things that would be my biggest criticism is at the current time is that there's not enough federal leadership to treat the health care crisis as a crisis that it is. 
you know, uh, when the pandemic happened, uh, you know, people got together and said, hey, let's let's work on this and let's make sure it works. There's a lot of criticism about how it happened, but people knew that that was a potential you know, giant crisis. Healthcare is a giant crisis, as you said, when you cannot access a physician, when you cannot access diagnostic imaging or lab work or a specialist in an appropriate amount of time, uh, then that's a crisis. And nobody is working at this as if it is a crisis. And that is the leadership that the federal government needs to have. And that's something that uh, that a conservative government would, would uh, absolutely change, work with the provinces very closely to understand what their priorities are and how we all work together also to avoid a duplication of effort. If uh, Nova Scotia has created a, a great electronic record, then why would, uh, say, Alberta create the same thing? We need to create it and then share it amongst ourselves and and, uh, and work together on it. Yeah, it was one of the caveats practice. with the most recent healthcare transfer dollar was the compilation of data. Last one before I let you go. You know, we're, t- we're talking about human resources, and of course, human resources drive the system. But before we interact with the healthcare system, not much attention is given across the country to the social determinants of health. So, man or woman. Child or adult, level of education, socioeconomic status, housing circumstances, all of these things. So we have a very much reactive system. Where do you think we should focus in on these social determinants of health? It's a big part of the conversation in this province, but basically we're just kind of chasing our tail to when people get sick as opposed to trying to keep them out of the hospital. Well, you know, as you correctly point out, we have a sickness uh, system. We don't have a health system. And no government uh, thus far has been bold enough to to tackle prevention and what it looks like. You know, for instance, in the uh, the, the terrible crisis that we know is related to the, the use of uh, illegal substances, nobody is at the current time bold enough. All we're doing is saying, let's decriminalize uh, these drugs when what people really need is they need an opportunity to have a life-changing event with uh, vocational support, with family support, with family reunification, with drug rehabilitation, and the ability to... To, to regain a life that has purpose. And I think I heard uh, before I came on someone saying is that no no little Johnny uh, is growing up saying, wow, I, I wish that I could you know, have an issue with the use and abuse of drugs when I grow up. And I believe that to be true, which then means we need to allow folks who are struggling with that to have a purpose and move forward and have that rehabilitative effort that they need, not decriminalization of drugs. Well, talk about a need in the change of tune. I mean, the war on drugs has been a multi-trillion dollar failure. It's never worked anywhere that they've ever tried it. So, you know, considering it as a healthcare issue versus strictly a criminal justice issue might be a good starting point or jumping off point because, you know, in the modern world, we've spent trillions of dollars and the, the uh, usage has gone up. The dangers uh, of these synthetic drugs has gone up. People are zombies. Crime has gone up as a result. So criminal justice is one component of drug addiction and access to drugs. Same thing with guns, I would suggest. Uh, Dr. Ellis, I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, sir, for having me on. I appreciate it. And uh, anytime you want to have me on, I'd love to be a part of your show. It's very informative. Thanks, and have a great day. Pleasure. Same to you, sir. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Stephen Ellis. He's the CPC MP for Cumberland Colchester. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. Morning. Yeah, I happened to be listening to the Global News last night, and uh, it's in the air now, like you say, the new sub-variant uh, COVID in the States is running wild, and it's uh, it's uh, taken into effect now into our country, Canada, and I was wondering what's in the toolbox now for our health minister, like you say, planning on 
for the fall of the year to give us a booster, but I will take it. There's a new there's a new one out there now, and he's running wild out in the states. Yeah, I don't <clears throat> know a whole lot about it. I know it's the EG5 subvariant of Omicron. Mm-hmm. I've seen mm-hmm. some reports that the folks in public health are predicting that it's in and around, or not predicting, they're saying it's in and around 35, 36, 37 percent of all the cases in Canada between mm-hmm. the end of July and the first week of August. I don't think there's been any indication that it uh, presents uh, any more severe outcomes, but I don't know what's in the so-called public health toolbox for the fall on this front. I know there's, you know, been suggestion of boosters if you're six months since your last one. Whether or not it's tailored any more specifically to this than other variants, I really don't know the answer to that. Well, at least they're at least they're got a heads up now. The knowledge is out there, so it's about they'll come up with some kind of a solution pretty soon. I suppose. Because, uh, it's I and my sister taken away from that old COVID part. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, yeah. The unfortunate reality is the vaccines just haven't worked as they were intended to or advertised to. I suggest they have been helpful. I know I'll be taking a task in some corners, but I don't care about that anymore. Uh, so what the fall holds for this particular variant and any public health policy, I really have no earthly idea. No, I just just want to get on the open waves and let people know. And uh, I called you yesterday. Did you get either uh, answer about that uh, about that options in the car dealership? Oh Did yeah, we actually had a call uh, shortly after yours about mm-hmm. that, and I spoke with uh, friends of mine who work at three different dealerships, and they had three different answers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, one, it was rolled in. That was it. It was part of the billing. Others, that was, if requested, it would be backed out. And the other guy said it's kind of hit or miss depending on who you deal with uh, inside their own shop. So three three different people, pretty much three different answers. The same way I got when I, when I, when I went a little tour there last week look for a, looking for a vehicle, which I bought one, but it's a pre-owned vehicle. Like you say, the option is there, but no, sir, they wouldn't let me option out $599. Yeah, it's not much of an option when you don't get a choice. Uh, I appreciate the call, and, you know, the, the public health conversation on this stuff, for some people, they're just absolutely 100% tired of it, but being mm-hmm. tired of it doesn't mean it's gone away. So mm-hmm. however we discuss it, I'm happy to try to be level-headed about things. And, you know, it's never been about be afraid. It's just about be aware. Awareness is a good way to handle yourself on a variety of things. So uh, I appreciate the time this morning. But what the few uh, the fall halls for public health, I really don't know. Well, I'll keep on striving. I'll, I will get a. Well, I will get an answer from this. Uh, from uh, but dealerships is either yes or no. Fair enough. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Take care. All right. Bye bye. Yeah, it, and that's where we are, isn't it? And I think that's quite clear. Is for a lot of people, it's just you never want to hear the word again in your life, right? And the pandemic has been extremely difficult on just about everybody. Some people have weathered it, no big deal. Others, whether it be the health concerns and or the mandates and the endless talk about it has been exhausting. I completely understand. But, you know, we can't all of a sudden, simply because we're all exhausted, pretend that it's done in full. It's gone. It's over. Because it's probably never going away. So what that means for public health, I'm sure glad that I have no role, no authority, no decision-making requirements about how we all proceed. And then there's... You know, we had a call last week about whether or not 
public health has just sort of given up and no messaging anymore because they're under fire. I mean, at the early days, some of the public health officials, they were very much in some corners put up on a pedestal and then very quickly in other corners knocked off. So it's probably a hesitation based on political reality that no one talks about it anymore or very few people talk about it anymore. But simply because it's not in the open discussion all day, every day, doesn't mean it's over. And how that influences what you do, how you act, where you go, well, I guess that's very much an individual issue. Today's a good day to get on the show. If you're in and around town, of course, remember to dial 709 before you dial 273-5211. So that's 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. David, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. I'd like to thank you very much for all you do, but I have to call you about this issue that's happening right now on Empire Avenue. Okay. There's a group home on Empire Avenue run by Choices for Youth. Now, I'm not going to say what number it is and everything else, but in the last four days, I have seen 17 police officers, 17 police cruisers outside that house. I have seen four ambulances outside that house. Now, uh, last night, there was police there. Uh, a, A lady there was in distress. She's pregnant. She fell over the stairs. I didn't see any assistance given to this lady. I have talked to Choices for Youth. I have sent pictures, and I see that Choices for Youth are going to restore the Grouchy building, which I think is all great. But I am telling you now, as a neighbor, this organization has not, in my case, talked to anybody in this neighborhood. They have come in with this Choices for Youth group home. There was no communication. Only the ones that I started, initiated. I am telling you, there's things happening at that house that is unbelievable. And I cannot get over that an institution that is paid by, you know, help paid by different uh, organizations and different uh, governments. Like, who's accountable here? Like, I don't know why a neighborhood has to go through this. This is crazy. This is a zoo over there. So 17 uh, different occasions where police showed up, and that was over the course of what time frame? Pardon me? Four days next door to me. Next door. Do you see what brings the police to respond to that address uh, flow outside of the home, or are these things that are happening predominantly inside the walls? I don't know what's happening. I think someone was trying to get evicted. I don't know for sure. I don't want to get involved. I can tell you from a neighborhood. Now, I understand that these people have an illness and everything else. I am sort of even suggesting it is their fault or anything else. People have to live somewhere. I understand that. But this, this, this place next door is not being held. It is not being managed very well at all there. I mean, I have allegations of other things happening there that I don't want to talk about it, but it is not very, very good. Uh, It is an insult. Now, I'm going to tell you, those neighbors down by Grouchy Place, like, and the other group homes here, I don't know what your group home is going like and everything else, but I'm telling you, 
from a neighbor, I am just up to my ears with choices for youth management. I'm not getting any cooperation or anything else like that. They say they're trying their best and everything else, but the police still come, the ambulances still come, nothing gets resolved. Uh, it is it is amazing. Uh, like I'm I am I'm I'm amazed. Uh, my neighbor is 93 years old. You know, there's a fire on the back of their deck. Uh, they're all asleep. Like. I don't know what's happening. I really don't. I, I'm, I'm, I'm totally, like, fabric-lasted by this whole institution there. You know, like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very disappointed, very disappointed. Whoever's on that board, I'm going to tell you now, you've got to go have a meeting and tell you and, and ask what's happening on that house on Empire Avenue because this is – someone's going to die there. Someone's, I'm telling you that now. And these would be deeply troubled youth who would be in these types of homes. And I guess, you know, the conversation would be, if not on Le Marchant uh, Avenue, then where? Or Marchant Road, pardon me, then where? Because that's that whole conversation. But that does not take away from your ultimate point that the type of supervision, the type of danger it presents has to be addressed, whether it be by choices for youth or a better understanding with conversation with the RNC, whatever it takes. Because we were actually trying to reach out to choices uh, for youth this week to talk about them taking over the old grocery building, which has been abandoned for quite some time, and it's built, I think, if I remember correctly, in 1929. You know, it would be a one-size-fits-all, all their services in, in under the one roof. So I'll add this to the conversation when and if we have a chance to have Mr. Pollard on, because it's important. It's one thing to provide the service, quite another for it to be managed the way it should be, to try to minimize or reduce a, a, to whatever level possible the type of need to call the police or any other first responder that you see repeatedly at that location. And I'll ask Mr. Pollitt that directly if we uh, manage to get him on the show. Don't get me wrong. I think there's fabulous, absolutely outstanding people in that organization. Oh, sure. Uh, how they're handling this one, it is beyond me. Uh, I mean, uh, all hours of the night arguments, things crashing and bagging, People dropping by, dropping things off. Now, it could be other things, but I don't know. They don't stop outside very long and pull down the window for very long and everything else. Uh, you know, some people say it's an unregistered daycare there. Some people say there's other things happening there. I, it's just, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I can't get over it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm beyond, beyond, beyond me. Uh, like in this day and age, is. I just don't know. I just don't know. I will absolutely uh, put this to Mr. Pollard when we can get him on. I appreciate that, Patty, and I am telling you, I just hope someone is, I hope everybody's safe. I really do. Thank right. you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for yours. Okay, take care. You know, and the, the group home concept, people are inevitably going to say, oh, that's the old NIMBY business. Fair enough, but... If there's an ongoing issue at the levels as described by David, there was a conversation we had about what's happening, and what type of controls are in place, or maybe some controls that aren't in place that need to be. Uh, anyway, just a very quick update here. We talked a little baseball earlier. There is the 21U Women's Invitational happening at St. Pat's, so the parking lot will be inaccessible between now and Monday, the 14th of August. There's going to be parking services on site to redirect the traffic. So if you were planning on trying to park down and around, whether you got minor ball or what have you, the parking lot is unavailable for the foreseeable future until August 14th. Pardon me. All right, let's try to get tra back on track with the brakes. The topic is absolutely 100% up to you. I think it was interesting that we speak to a conservative member this morning about an issue inside Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, 
But it does have implications here because even if we talked about having an understanding about whose responsibility, whose jurisdiction, and who foots the bill for things like this, you know, TransCanada Highway, CN Rail Lines. So it does have an implication. Then the amount of goods that I think Mr. Ellis or Dr. Ellis quoted $35 billion worth of goods annually flows across that isthmus, some of which may indeed be destined for this province. Coming into Nova Scotia, ending up in North Sydney, ending up on Marine Atlantic, and consequently uh, ending here in our central Port of Basque. Then it's the concept, as we discussed, regarding what might be the implications regarding uh, energy transmission and the Atlantic Loop, which is still part of the conversation here. We don't really know much about it. We do know at one point when the government announced it, then they had to go back to the drawing board and do more due diligence. Then there was who's going to pay for it. And at one time, it was estimated to be somewhere around 4 or $5 billion. Now it's in excess of in around $6.5 The feds have said they're going to pay two-thirds of the bill, but we still have a never-ending list of questions about what it is, who builds it, who owns it, who's in charge of it. But we, what we do know quite clearly is I've been reading some energy-related stuff coming from Quebec, maybe because I'm just interested in what those 2041 discussions look like. But no matter how you slice it, the power from the Upper Churchill and the concept of the Atlantic Loop, absolutely the Hydro-Quebec is the biggest game in town. Some might say the biggest bully on the block. They have no choice but to do business with us here. A full 15% of their energy portfolio is 100% reliant on the Upper Churchill. So when we talk about the loop and, you know, in the most recent federal budget, it was all about the Maritimes. Newfoundland and Labrador wasn't even mentioned. We were told that was an innocent issue just based on the current status of the conversation. But, yeah, they need us as much as we've ever needed them. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Okay, so... Very briefly mentioned off the top the uh, news we heard from the RNC yesterday regarding the arrest and the charge of second-degree murder of a 14... Pardon me, the murder charge of a 14-year-old boy has been charged. So his role in the death of a 65-year-old woman in Mount Pearl. And the emailer wonders why I don't ask, where are the parents? Well, for starters, I don't even know if the child has any parents. So, yes, when we talk about young people and the way they behave, whether it be in front of their parents or behind their parents' back, we all play a role as parents to ensure that we do the very best we can to try to ensure our children are well-behaved and polite and hardworking and reasonable and, you know, to stay away from the criminal element. But, yeah, that was the main concern of the uh, emailer was how come I didn't uh, talk about the parents or blame the parents? The basics are I don't even know if the child has parents. So that's that. You know, until we know more, like many things that grab the headlines, and it is quite the shock to the system to hear about a 14-year-old charged with a murder. You know, it remains, remains to be seen how it uh, comes out in the court of law. But, yeah, that's the basics. I didn't offer much more in, in the way of commentary about it because I don't know anything. N- nobody does. Well, I guess members of the RNC know more about it than the rest of the general public. But that's all the details we have is that they were known to each other and they're looking for a blue recycling bag that they think was discarded on Smallwood Drive or the surrounding area, including Park Avenue. And they're asking people to provide whatever information they can, whether it be with your dash cams or the cameras in your doorbells or whatever the case may be. So, yeah, that's the basics as to why no more commentary on it, because nothing really to say until we know more about it. But absolutely as i said a shock to the system to know that there's a 14 year old charged with such a serious crime 
Okay. And again, some of the, like, if you don't hear me bring it up, I repeatedly have to say that it doesn't matter what I bring up. If you want to talk about something different than what you've heard and or elaborate on something, that's completely up to you. We welcome your call. And this one is about, well, we haven't talked about public libraries, but we have. We actually had a librarian. Actually, we've had two conversations in the last couple of weeks about the public library system. Now, you know, it's not always simply a matter about spend more, spend more, spend more, spend more. It's how and where and why we spend money, right? I mean, that's the, the ultimate determining factor in how effective government is managing my money, your money, because they don't have any of their own money. It's how they spend it. For some people, a library is still a big hub in the community. And we've seen what it's meant through the pandemic, for instance. Years ago, the funding for the public libraries was cut. Now they're operating with about, well, I had a number here close by. It's about $950,000 per year since 2013, and that has not increased. Everything else has increased. I mean, just simply the cost of books has increased, we're told, somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 50%. Consequently, not restocking the shelves with new material as they once did. And, of course, the library is simply not about books and periodicals. There's movies and games, and there's a seed uh, library at the public libraries. So there's a lot more to it. When we have issues, as we know full well, we've got literacy issues uh, in this province. We have people who use the library, whether it be seniors or otherwise to try to figure out how to more easily use the internet, for instance. So it's more than simply your library card and you take out a Charles Dickens book. There's just much more to it in the library system. But no matter what people think about it, even in the uptick in the digital lens, which has gone up about 70% for the obvious reason in the last three years because of the public health concerns. So no increase in funding since 2013 doesn't make much sense, period, regardless of what we're talking about. If it's still being utilized, and it looks like it is, the numbers of individuals using library services is up, but funding is stagnant since 13. There's something probably to be said for that. So, you know, you can blame one government or another, but since 2013, we've had two different parties at the helm. So maybe there's a conversation we can have there. I will admit, I haven't gone to the library to use library services in quite a long time. But that doesn't mean that people don't. And in some communities, as I said, it's a big hub of activity for a number of reasons. Anyway, if that's of import to you, and we have talked about it. We had uh, a librarian on from two different, one from St. John's and one thing out in Carbonair. We were promoting a book sale, but it also stemmed into a conversation regarding public funding for public libraries. Okay. Also, in the world of online news, you know, there's an interesting way that people are couching the Online News Act or Bill C-18. And again, I'm not really too concerned what your political leanings are, but, you know, it's easy enough to blame the federal government. It's their legislation, but they basically ask for the big tech giants, the Googles and the Medias of the world, to pay more to the news outlets that created the news that they distributed on their site. And yes, it does come with a benefit to the uh, companies like ours. If you see a VOCM.com news story on Facebook and click it, you get redirected to our site. Totally get it. But... They've just gobbled up so much in the way of advertising dollars. You know, there is a, a level of importance of especially small media outlets that gets completely glossed over in this conversation. Some of the things going on in your community, whether it be outlets like, for instance, uh, Breckhouse Press. If we have to try to innovate to the end of the earth, to try to come up with a way to compete against the unbeatables, the Googles of the world, they can't be touched. You know, what are we supposed to do about them? So we try to do the best we can to keep the wolf away from the door. 
But again, whether you're a conservative, an NDP, or a liberal, or a rhino party, or a marijuana party, fact of the matter is, so much of the small, medium-sized media outlets in the country have gone. You know, I know there's a change in how people get their news, and I know there's complications if you operate a broadsheet, a newspaper. But that doesn't mean we just shrug our shoulders and let the biggest bullies on the block, the tech giants, steamroll the whole entirety, because I guarantee you one thing. There will not be a representative to uh, come to cover your local council meeting that represents Google or Facebook or Instagram. It's just not happening. It's not even the reality, right? So I think there's a conversation, a larger one to be had there, about what's right and fair and realistic versus one party or another is dumb or smart. Okay, let's take a break for the 11 o'clock news. When we come back, we're looking forward to speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. So, you know, I do not mind at all responding to emails, which I try to respond to as many as humanly possible throughout the course of the day. And there's a lot coming in. And this one is about the story, the update yesterday we got from the province about healthcare recruitment. And the listener says, you know, do I ever have an opportunity to thank or congratulate or applaud one government or another for things like this? It's not about applauding or condemning, you know, we just offer information. People do with it what they see fit. So in this case, the update yesterday, and I did say, look, you know, recruiting is good. We have the vacancies. But if we're told that the recruitment effort since the 1st of April resulted in 40 physicians, 170 nurses, and inside that 170 is registered nurses, LPNs, and nurse practitioners. Okay. But if just take it from government themselves. They've also gone on to say that the vacancy level remains largely unchanged. They say there's been a net gain, but they don't know how many doctors or nurses, RNs or LPNs or NPs, have left or retired since the 1st of April. So we don't have a real firm number about net gain. So that's that. That's not a condemnation. That's they actually said that out loud themselves. So that's just the reality. Inside it, there was also a comment I made about, you know, if we don't set goals about, for instance, the efforts that we're putting forward in India to recruit registered nurses, it comes with some sort of associated price tag. So if we don't know, and we're told by Debbie Malloy, who's the Vice President of Human Resources with the Newfoundland Labrador Health Services, that there's 18 job offers to Indian nurses have been accepted. There's another 40, as she says, in the hopper. There's another 450 resumes that they have yet to evaluate in full. So when we have these efforts that we're doing, whether it be doctors in Ireland or nurses in India, setting a target is helpful. Because, you know, we do it in all levels of different business, and I know government is not necessarily a business, but if you say that, well, the hope was to bring in 50, then we'll be able to measure about our, our approach, the thought behind the success rate that we can enjoy, whether it be in India or, or otherwise, because without the goals, then it's a hard way to measure whether or not it was the success that you hoped it was. Because make no mistake, in the meetings, They've obviously discussed things like this. They haven't put forward a number publicly because that would become a win or lose, right? So if they said we were hoping to get 100 nurses and they don't get it, then people will very quickly say, well, that's a failure. When in fact, adding to the roster is not a failure. It's very helpful. But, you know, asking about how much things cost, it's kind of important. So that's not about being uh, pro or con or uh, against these efforts because you and I all share the same 
issues here is when you need a healthcare professional, regardless of the discipline, that you just need one. And where they come from is not my number one concern. My number one concern is that you're there and you're available and we have enough of you so that things like the burnout and things like the stress and things that may be influencing, for instance, in the registered nurses world, to not accept the contract offer to move from casual to permanent full-time. And that's one of the issues, once again, Ms. Malloy talked about with the net gain, is that it also includes the casual nurses. Also, when we add to that conversation, we need to know about what impact that's had on the number of travel agency nurses are still being utilized and the price tag that comes with it. Because as much as healthcare is referred to as universal and some people say it's free, it's not. So, you know, adding the money component is not turning a blind eye to the fact that we're talking about people's health. Of course not. And people's health is directly related to their timeliness of accessing services and the amount of time you spend waiting in an emergency room and whether or not that emergency room visit was based on the fact that you don't have a doctor. So these things are all very inherently linked. So it's, again, we'll just give the information. People can say it's great. People can say it's not enough. People can condemn it. That's entirely up to you. And we welcome your call on that front. And in the registered nursing world, we still know that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of a couple of hundred vacant uh, long-term care beds. And the folks who would be in those beds, if the staff was available, they are very likely in a hospital. So that further complicates the issue with wait times and surgeries being postponed and all the rest of it. So it's one thing to try to get it right in a clinic, in a collaborative care clinic, in a family practice, or a, team pro a team-based approach in one clinic or another, or yes, in long-term care. You get it right there, and then you loosen up the system because that ripple effect is really quite clear. If your surgery has been delayed because there's not a bed available and or staff for that bed, because someone lying in a bed where you might be recovering from your surgery is waiting for staff to be available to open up more long-term care beds, obviously a good starting point would be right there in those long-term care facilities. On that front, I don't know if anybody knows exactly who has been the citizen's representative on the evaluation of personal care homes and long-term care facilities, and we don't really know what the status of that review entails at this moment in time, but talk about the need to get things right. So between the evaluation of well, where we are in the forecasted numbers, and yes, the issue with more and more supports to age in place, that comes with a money-related concern. It also comes with a happiness of life concern. You know, so many people, if they had enough support to stay in their own home as they grow old, it would be so much better for all of us. It'd be better for that individual, for their family, for their friends, and yes, better on the price tag. No question. Uh, required levels of support at home when you compare that cost to being a full-time resident of a long-term care facility there's win-wins to be had across the board so that evaluation of more and more attention to aging in place is going to be a big part of this when we talk about health care uh let's go to line number two mark wilson you're on the air hey patty how's it going doing okay how about you good i, I have to say i was pleasantly surprised i made a doctor's appointment the other day i was I, it's been a it's been a little while since I've been to the doctor, and I was very pleasantly surprised to find out I had a family doctor still, even though my old doctor had retired. I had been put in the list, and uh, and luckily I have a family doctor. I feel very privileged to have that. I'm quite uh, pleased. I was a long, long, long time without a family doctor, and now that I've been assigned one at the Monday Pond Collaborative Care Clinic, couldn't be happier with her, and how easy it has been for me to see her. Now I know I'm, I guess, one of the lucky ones, because that patient connect list is still pretty long. 
Definitely. Uh, it's not why I'm calling. I'm, I'm calling to talk about the need for further supports. Uh, you know, we've talked many times about my neighborhood down here on Livingstone Street and surrounding neighborhoods. Um, I spoke with Tim while you were gone briefly, but we didn't really get into all the details of the asks that our neighborhood has put together. And we're, we're about to release those. Um, and I just wondered, uh, you know, there's been a lot of calls over the last little while about, you know, the issues ongoing, the mental health issues, the addictions issues. And it's really become a big issue, hasn't it? A hundred percent. It's uh, an issue. And, you know, how people want to label it, I suppose, important because words are important. Words have meaning. But to deny that this is a crisis in certain pockets of the province or the city and the country is kind of giving government a, a free pass. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, if, and if you if you follow the news elsewhere, like if this has been an issue. This has been a crisis elsewhere. It's just finally hitting us. And we're ill. It seems like we're very ill prepared and not ready to to hit the ground running, which is disappointing. So that's why we've been advocating so hard because we've seen this coming. Um, yesterday, a friend of mine actually he was he's just came back. He's a chef up in Montreal and a musician, and uh, he walked down my street on Livingstone, and he said he saw. Uh, a full brawl between people on the street. Um, he said, "I've he he had never seen anything like that in Montreal." So I think I think we we have a you know we have we like like everything else in Newfoundland Labrador we we have our own brand of issues, um, but these issues the crime the the instability uh, the the suffering the pain that that we you know that is that I see every day is here and needs attention. So anyways, Patty, do you mind if I just talk about some of the, the five issues that we're asking for from government, from Go ahead. city council and from MPs to help resolve some of the issues? Sure. Um, we, uh, and this, this one's being worked on as far as I know. We need a working group. We've had a working group uh, for, for all stakeholders. Um, mental health addictions, harm reduction, uh, housing, um, poverty reduction. We believe that that is actually something that, you know, we, we've spoken to, to folks in CSSD, um, to one of the ADMs there, and we believe that that is actually something that is going to move forward or has been, is, is being looked at. That's got to include health. That's got to include justice. Uh, we need Sarah Studley on board, her department for that, in terms of uh, dealing with some of the issues regarding uh, landlords that we're seeing. Um, and you and I have talked about that in the past as well. Um, we need a community center in the neighborhood. I'm not exactly 100% positive what that will look like because we have an interesting mix here um, where we have renters, we've got homeowners, and we've got City of St. John's housing, and we've also got NL housing. So we have a we have a wide mix, but a lot of a lot of folks are dealing with the same issues, whether that be housing, poverty, uh, or mental health and addictions, or the impacts of you know the, the issues that go along with um, with uh, these things when they're unchecked. 
Um, we also have uh, we need oversight. Um, we need we need supports on mental health and addictions and poverty poverty reduction um, for vulnerable members of our neighborhood. And I think that that can be kind of expanded to other neighborhoods within the city and within the province. And that's why we believe that you know city council really needs to pay attention to this and uh, try to move out of the 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 business of simply examining infrastructural changes and look at the social infrastructure that that makes up our communities. I feel, Patty, that, and perhaps you agree with me, neighborhoods that operate well, that feel good, that are an, a good place to live, uh, have um, have contiguity uh to to them have like a you know have a a a pattern of uh, cohesiveness where where people can interact in ways that aren't harmful um so i think that 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 is something that we we'd like the provincial government our mps uh joanne thompson and and seamus to uh, and city council to take very seriously and to do what what's needed. The the research on that kind of thing is not, you know, it's it's not like <laughs> rocket science. Uh, we need to help people who are vulnerable. Um, we've in our discussions with city hall, Patty. We we've talked about the city of St. John's Act. Um, and of course, you know, in my conversations with you about the, the battery light issue and various things across the city, they have basically said, like, you know, for 30 years we've been asking for a new act, and so we we want to empower them, and we've asked the provincial government to just get this done, get this done now, let the city of St. John's do the things that they say they want to do, and at that point we'll. We'll see if they can do them. Uh, and uh, lastly, uh, we'd, we'd really like to see both the city, the province, and the feds improve social housing in the neighborhood and uh, share resources to serve this neighborhood and others obviously need the same. Uh, and, and this is going to really improve the downtown as well. So that's that's sort of the, the, the headings of our asks and we go into pretty great detail to be honest patty we have a lot of folks as, as we've talked about before we've, we've got a lot of folks here in the community that do know what we're talking about have seen the issues up front and in you know from a very close perspective um the connections with justice system uh how poverty is impacting folks um, how housing specifically really impacts folks to, uh, you know, to to be able to create a um, a living scenario where they can succeed to um, deal with mental health addiction issues and whatever else life brings. 
it's an all-encompassing approach required. And, you know, I, I get where different levels of government talk about jurisdictional responsibility, but on things like this, with the complexities included, it's kind of all hands on deck. It's not about, well, it's not my responsibility, because ultimately, it's everybody's responsibility if you're in the world of governance and public policy and how government money gets spent and collaboration between municipalities and the province and the feds. I mean, this is not a one entity is fully responsible. It's all hands. Uh, Mark, I'm late for the break, but I appreciate the time this morning. Anything else very quickly? Well, I can't re- reiterate your point enough that jurisdic- we don't have time for people to argue over jurisdictions. We need action, and we've needed it for two years. We've needed it for 10 years. We need it now more than ever. Thank you very much. Appreciate the time. Take care. Bye-bye. Look, I took a stroll through the neighborhood because I've been hearing so much about it. And, yeah, there's some pretty dodgy stuff going on right out in the open. And people send me videos all the time uh, from some of the activities they witnessed during the evening and overnight, and it's pretty scary. All right, let's take a break. For dog owners in the province, heartworm has not really been a big concern, but that's changing. Why? We'll find out when we say hello and good morning to Dr. Maggie brown Brewery right after this. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to our veterinarian friend here on the program, Dr. Maggie brown Brewery. Dr. brown Brewery, you're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. How are you? That's kind today. How about you? Not too bad. So I, I wanted to chat with you a little bit about heartworm, um, which, in case anyone doesn't know, is a very literal name. It is a worm that will live in the heart of your dog. Um, and it's not something that um, we really discuss with our clients in Newfoundland because in Canada, the areas of risk are more um, southern Ontario, southern Quebec, southern Manitoba. Um, and out here, we don't typically worry about it um, because we don't have the right climate. Okay. Uh, but lately, there's been a lot of people adopting dogs from Texas. Um from all over the world, really, but in Texas in particular, seems to have a, a really robust uh, dog rescue system and for getting those dogs, finding them homes across uh, across the continent. Um, and Texas is one of the top five locations for heartworm. Um, so dogs in Texas, basically, they have heartworm unless proven otherwise, and they don't think of it as being a big deal because it's so common down there. So they will adopt out these dogs that are heartworm positive, not really realizing that they're sending the dog somewhere where people don't know a lot about heartworm. Before we get into like a worm living in the heart sounds particularly dangerous. What is the danger? Uh, so a lot of the time if a dog has like a heartworm infection, uh, they might seem very healthy. When it first is in the dog, it doesn't necessarily cause any big problems for them. But what can happen is as those worms grow uh, in the heart, they can cause obstruction to the blood flow out of the heart and cause really severe heart failure. So it can be deadly. Exactly, yeah. Okay. So is there any way to identify whether or not a dog being adopted from Texas or anywhere else has heartworm? A lot of the time, these dogs coming from Texas will have some medical records that will say when they were tested and what the results were. Um, And a lot of them will come up saying that they are positive. So it's really important that people that are getting these dogs follow up with a veterinarian here um, to either retest and confirm the infection before starting treatment uh, or to start treatment and then do the follow-up. One thing that's important to note, though, is that it takes about six to seven months after you are infected before it will show up on a test. So if you're getting like a young dog, like a five or six month old puppy, um, 
they will not have tested it because there's no way they could have been infected long enough ago for the test to show it. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't follow up with additional testing once you bring that dog here to Newfoundland. Uh, And the reason that this has been coming up lately is adopting dogs from Texas has been going on for a while now, and some of the veterinarians across the province are seeing dogs that have been living here uh, for over a year who never did that follow-up doing the test and finding out that they've been living with heartworm this whole time. Um, And then our concern is with climate change, the temperatures are changing and we have been meeting the criteria for transmission in Newfoundland. And if these dogs are living here with heartworm, could they be putting other dogs at risk? Uh, Because we do have mosquitoes here and mosquitoes are how the disease is spread. That's what I was going to ask because, I mean, uh, you know, becoming infected, I was wondering how that even happened. So it's as simple as transmission via mosquito. Yeah, and, and the the trick is that it has like a mosquito has to bite an infected dog, picks up the tiny like baby worms in the bloodstream, um, and those worms continue to develop inside the mosquito. And then when the mosquito bites another dog, it passes on the more mature worms. Um, the, the reason we haven't worried about it in Newfoundland is that that. Uh, maturation inside the mosquito takes about a couple of weeks and the temperature the mosquito is living in has to stay above a certain point for those couple of weeks Um, and especially in St. John's uh, we don't often stay sort of above 14 degrees Celsius 24-7 for two weeks straight Um, but looking historically Gander is one place that I have looked at the the historical temperature data at because I know of several dogs in that area Um, a month and a half uh, last year we met the requirements pretty consistently so there is a there is definitely a risk that whether or not heartworm can be transmitted in Newfoundland, uh, whether that's possible or not, there is a risk that that's changing. Um, and so if people are adopting these dogs, and I'm not trying to discourage people from adopting these dogs from Texas, uh, I just want people to be more aware of the risk of heartworm and maybe even just bring it up with your veterinarian, whether or not you need to be testing your dog again. Um, a lot of the tick and flea products that we use for all other kinds of parasites also cover for heartworm. So a lot of people's dogs are protected. um, But, you know, we are just taking unnecessary risk if we don't follow up on these dogs coming from other areas and the diseases that they're bringing in with them. I was going to ask about, you know, protecting your dog, which is not from Texas, from being infected with heartworm. But so let's say I get my dog tested and it's positive for heartworm. Then what? So there are treatment options, um, especially if the dog is not having any symptoms. Um, The big thing that uh, people need to sort of recognize is that it is a long process to treat them. Um, So, you know, if the dog comes up from Texas, I I do appreciate that because people are not familiar with heartworm, they're given a couple weeks of pills that come with the dog and they think, okay, when this is done, I'm done. Um, But we actually do treatment for at least a month and then there's a lot of follow-up with dogs that have symptoms. Um, There's additional medication that has to be given and there is, so there's an organization in the United States called the Heartworm Society and they are a website. It has information for uh, pet owners as well. So they have stuff broken down for pet owners and it's just heartwormsociety.org. But their sort of treatment protocol 
is a year long. Um, now you're not on medication for that whole year, but they, basically you're on medication for like three months and then you test again after three more months and then you test again um, nine months after you finish the medication. So it's a year long process before we can say you're definitely clear of heartworm. Um, they, because the worms are in the heart, there is risks with the treatment, uh, and it is it has to be monitored quite closely. And if the dog is starting to show symptoms of heart disease, uh, then there is a lot of risks while going through the treatment. But it is something that can be treated. It's just that if we don't know it's there, we're not treating it, and then there's risk. So what would symptoms look like? Are we talking about a persistent cough or something? Yep, so coughing is definitely one thing that we look for. The kind of heart failure that heartworm will cause um, causes ascites, which is when fluid builds up in the belly. Um, so if you have a dog who's coughing and their belly looks bloated, and this is a dog that you adopted from Texas, that's going to be really high on our list is that they have heartworm causing heart failure. Um, but again, a lot of dogs with heartworm you can't tell just by looking at them. When I, I went to school in Ontario where there is quite a bit of heartworm and we always would be shown dogs who, hey, this dog who looks perfectly healthy actually has heartworm. Um, and then we would sort of follow them through the treatment and all of that. But, uh, you know, once you start to have that heart failure, the risk is so, so much higher. It is much better to catch it before their symptoms, um, which means if you're bringing in these dogs from, from the southern U.S., um, from places where it's warm and they have mosquitoes, talk about heartworm with your veterinarian. Make sure that you have completed all the tests to say this dog is in the clear. Um, even if you're using the preventives to prevent, if they came with heartworm, those preventives aren't going to necessarily get rid of the heartworm. So that was the last one before I let you go. So can it be cured or are we simply managing the issue once diagnosed? It can be cured. Okay. Yeah, you can you can end up with a negative status and then you can just take it off very list unless you go on a trip. I really appreciate the time and the heads up for the listening public. Thanks, uh, Doc. Thanks for having me on. Happy to do it. Take care. That's okay, Dr. Maggie Brown Burry. So that's new. Let's take a break. Pat's in the queue to talk about housing options in town. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. All right, let's go. Line number two. Pat, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks. How about you? Not too bad. Thank you. Um, I'm calling about the housing crisis in this city, Mount Pearl, Paradise area, right? Um, I have a family member who has been looking for an apartment for six months. Uh, she's middle-aged, uh, middle-aged girl, uh, lives by, you know, lives by herself. I've had to move out of her apartment because some family member wanted to move in. So uh, she's been looking for months and months and months, can't find a place to live. I'm very disappointed in our government, very, very disappointed in that our premier and the government itself bringing in immigrants from all over the world. Now, I don't have any problem with people coming into this province. No problem at all. God love them. They need a place to go to. However, my children were raised here. They work here. They live here. And and you tell me it, it's fair that someone 
like my daughter, like could be your daughter, your son, or whoever, cannot find a place to live in this city. There was a major, major problem. I know the hotels are all booked with uh, refugees or immigrants. Uh, I know I know there's people, nine and ten people, living in a house. Uh, looking at it from the government's point of view, where are their heads when they put immigrants in a hotel, uh, in a house with eight or nine other people? What about the health conditions of those people? Well, of course, if people choose to live in a crowded space, that wouldn't be government making them do it. That would be something they decide to do themselves. Yes, but they have nowhere else to go. Well, the, the immigration issue, I think that we have a, a big focus on housing crisis and saying it's all on the backs of newcomers to the, to the country and to the province or to the city or surrounding area. When, in fact, the population has been growing in CBS Paradise, Mount Pearl, St. John's for quite a while. And a lot of that would be people from around the country and different parts of the province moving into the city. So that's also a contributing factor. Then there's all sorts of other wrinkles like the numbers of housing units that are are lease only or their rental units or their Airbnb. So I think there's a lot of issues that contribute to the vacancy rate, which is very low. It's around 3% here in this area at this moment in time. Not so long ago, it was around 9%. So I think yep. there's much more to it than simply newcomers. Yes, you're, you're probably right. However, <clears throat> however, the people that are moving in from around the province, they're mostly retirees who have who will sell their home and they want to move into the city to be their children. So you can't put, you can't say to them, you can't build a house here when they want to live here. That's up to them. They want to live here and buy a house here, have a house built. They're not, that's not the problem. The problem is there's so many people living on our streets. It breaks my heart. And now I'm in the same situation. I'm not having my daughter live on the street. I can tell you that right now. I have a senior's apartment, uh, a very nice senior's apartment, and but I only have one bedroom, so I cannot put her. I cannot let her go on the street. However, the problem with this government—they should have seen to this 20 years ago. They knew 20 years ahead of time. And nobody addressed, nobody addressed, nobody built any any affordable housing, nobody did anything. Now the government is stuck with this, and the people who are suffering are the people from this province, who I work for, for 40 years, and earn my keep. I don't need anything from the government, I don't need anything, my daughter doesn't need anything. Uh, I just think that, and you fury... It's given money. I know he had no choice but to give the nurse a raise. He had no choice but to do what he's doing because he is a wimp. And from he's I've a wimp. Because, sorry, he's a wimp God. because of what? Sorry. Pardon me. He's a. I think he said he's a wimp because of what? Sorry. He gives in to all the people so easily. Why well, doesn't he come out and say, "We will build X number of houses"? They'll get their money back. I'm pay. Uh, you and I are paying for him to have it, have his, his paycheck with the taxes I've uh, money I've earned over the years, and now the taxes and the clawbacks and all this. No, I, I don't. I don't buy any of these things. And these people can, are hardly welcomed here. 
and I know a couple, and they're very, very nice people. But <clears throat> look after our own people first. And this really upsets me. Look after our own people first before you bring in plane loads of people. I, I, I've had it with this government. I, I've had it with a lot of things, uh, Patty. I've talked to you before on different items. Uh, this is one that's really hitting home to me. Yeah, my only, look, I mean, your concerns are your concerns. Uh, the only thing that I think is becoming a, far too much a feature of the conversation, and you, if you listen to the show, you've heard me talk about uh, immigration and housing and health care and daycare and all the rest of it. I have. Is that there's just different implications regarding the housing issue and it's not just here it's everywhere so that point also in the world of government uh, trying to deal with housing issues i'm not giving them a pass because i think the housing issue is an absolute crisis in the country there's been two recent announcements and nothing gets built quickly and in fact we don't even have enough skilled trades to build the number of homes we need in this country period so who did that right pardon me why did they all leave they had no choice they couldn't get any work here. Oh, there's lots of work to be had. That's one of the realities here is like in, in the world of housing. At the current pace, through the first two quarters of this year, there was uh, housing starts for about 62,000 in the country. The reality is by 2030, we're going to have to build 3.5 million additional homes on top of the current pace of building. Oh, so yes. in this province, there's been two recent announcements regarding housing, one for 850 affordable units, another of 750 affordable units. The problem there is that's all fine and dandy. It's when are they going to be built? So he's finally telling me there's money to do whatever. It's quite another to tell me when it's actually going to be available to others. Exactly. And then there's all kinds of issues with the numbers of units uh, that are owned and operated by Newfoundland Labrador Housing that are still boarded up, waiting renovations, waiting refurbishments, or waiting for whatever reason to open them back up to folks who need housing from that corporation. So I think there's a lot to the housing conversation. I don't think there's just one complicating factor. I think there's a ton. Thankfully, in this province, we haven't seen... The the amount of foreign ownership, like they've seen in other super hot markets like in Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, maybe even in Calgary, because that makes the conversation out in those parts of the country even more different than what we're talking about. So I understand your concern, and nobody wants to see their child without a house or anything else under the sun, but I think it's a massively complicated conversation. But I understand your concerns this morning, Pat. Would you like to say anything else before we take a break? No, it's just how disappointed I am. And, and uh, how very disappointed I am in our government. And, and uh, now I find myself, I am faced now with a medical issue that has to be dealt with ASAP. <clears throat> but that's not why I called. I called about my daughter and I called just to let the government know they have to do something. They have to do something. And they, ha they can't wait. Why didn't... Uh, 20 years ago, why didn't they then look ahead? People look ahead at the future and plan, right? Just a very quick question before I let you go, Pat. So what does apartment searching look like? I mean, how are the, how is uh, your daughter coming up with places to consider or to have a look I'm at? On uh, uh, market, but not market, I don't know. She's on, the, on her phone constantly looking at different. She's seen a few apartments. Uh, some of them you wouldn't, you know, some are terrible. Some are decent. Uh, do you some people, when they put their apartment, it's gone by the time they text to people who put the Oh, they're, they're gone in a heartbeat. Is some of the other complications how much she can afford in rent? 
No, no, she's pretty flexible. Okay. Uh, anyway, I appreciate the time. Fingers crossed that this gets settled. And uh, thanks for calling this morning, Pat. You're quite welcome. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Bram, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Waiting for you to come back is like waiting for your father to come home and give you a clout. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> the commercials are so long, you just wait and wait. Oh, my God, am I going to get on any top tall? You're getting Listen, on now. I, I, okay, I got about a thousand topics, but I, one I got to tell you about is I got two birds. And I took the wife down to the, uh, down by to look at the boats down there, me and the missus, and have a little lunch. Some lout, in the words of uh, Bill, killed a little bird, one of them little seagulls. And he's beautiful. Oh, my God. I, I picked it up. The wife said, what are you going to do with it? I said, I'm going to stick it in the bag and put it in the fridge. And we had a bit of rain there last week, and a woodpecker was up on the pole in my backyard, and, of course, he got zapped. So I got two birds, and I'm looking for someone to stuff them, and I can't find a soul anywhere in Newfoundland. Okay, very quickly, how did someone kill the gull? Just purposely went after yeah, it and killed it? it they're louts. They just drive through them. And like up in the malls anywhere, they just drives on through like they're not even there. That's how one guy killed two down on the road down here by my place, down Curling, right? Down in Eddie Joyceville, I calls it. And I turned around and chased him by. And you think I could catch him? He was in a great big tank. Now, I'm not going to say it's from province because, I mean, all the Newfoundlanders goes there, right? He must have been home for a week. And he, and he looked at me. I stopped. And I was there trying to get the piece of pizza off the road because the birds were fighting over it. And he just drove right on through seven of them and killed three of them. Yeah, I saw a guy run over some ducks there a little while ago. It was a bit much. Okay, so yeah. you're obviously on the West Coast. There is a yep. taxidermy service in Cornerbrook, I know. No, there's one in Newsy's Brook, but he's he's blocked. He's full. Okay, because I know it's called Newfoundland Taxidermy Services. I only know that because a friend of mine used them very recently and was quite, uh, was quite pleased. I don't know how what? long they had to line up for it, but... No, he told me he's booked up for about two years. He said, gold. No, he said, my fridge is full of them. Yeah, no, I, I didn't say that he just was walked in and got service right away, but he had used that uh, organization in the past, that company, and he thought they were great. Other than that, I know there's one in CBS, uh, Conception Bay South. I can't remember what it's called, yeah. but the, they're the only ones I know about. I'm sure there's got to be something. Uh, there's got to be yeah. more on the West Coast. Oh, uh, yeah. One Labrador, someone told me, but it's, you know, the packaging and all that. By the time he gets to be a toddy, they'll have to cook him when he gets in. Isn't there one in Rocky Harbor? I have no idea. That's what I'm trying to find out. Okay. I'm going to have on my computer. Hold on a second here. I figured somebody would know on your listing there, their phone, and say, send them to me. Because there's, after all, I mean, they're in the fridge. And they're wrapped, and I, I just, you know, I got to get, I get some fish coming, and I got no room for it because I got a side by side fridge. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Okay, I just found one in Rocky Harbor, Northern Taxidermy. It's called, and I got a phone number. Okay, just give me a second. Okay, no, I got a pen here. Good. Yeah. Seven zero nine. I got that one. Yeah. Four five eight. Four five eight. Three three. Thirty three. Ninety six. Ninety. Yep. So taxidermy, T-A-X-R-D-E-R. Because if I just put down tax, I'll have to phone the wrong company. <laughs> yeah, Northern Taxidermy is apparently what this one's called. Well, listen, Patty Biden, listen, the big thing on Monday, everybody was saying, well, what happened to Patty? 
Yeah, no show Monday. The, yeah. the the basics of that is that the national company that owns a Stingray, they put yeah. us on their national statutory holiday schedule, which includes oh. the, the national civic holiday. Wasn't recognized yeah. formally in this province, but we had a stat. We were actually given three to pick from. We could pick two out of a list of three. I picked that one, uh, like most people did here in the building, because, of course, it's a summer holiday on a Monday. So, yeah, it was basically yeah. because it was a stat. And you could have went to the, the rowing, and you missed out on it. I could have done that. Uh, yeah. Went down for a little peek in the afternoon, but you know, I don't can't remember the last time I had a show on Regatta Day. But there you go. Yeah. Well, anyways, listen, you're doing a fantastic job, and thank you for all the good work and all the stuff. And I got one more thing to say: that RCMP officer shouldn't be walking the streets, as far as I'm concerned. Which guy? The uh, Snellgrove? Yeah, I don't have to say his name. Yeah. Everybody knows. It's no terrible. argument here. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Anyways, well, you have a wonderful day and have a wonderful week, and God bless you now, and I'll talk to you again. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate the time. Okay, bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, last word this morning goes to line three. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you today? Excellent. Thanks. You? <laughs> Good. Good. I'll make this really quick. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm a non... Well, I'm a resident of Newfoundland, but I'm not from here. Okay. My son was born here um, four years ago. So we went to the emergency room. He had an asthma attack. And we were brought right through. We didn't do any of the check-in with the uh, with the MCP or the bracelet or anything like that. And anyway, um, move fast forward two weeks. I get a bill for $656 um, from Eastern Health for a non-resident. So does your child have an MCP card? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yep. So is it not available to simply go through MCP? So I think what you said is you, because of the severity of the attack, you didn't deal with the uh, triage nurse and present all the information? Is that what you said? That's correct. Okay. Yep. So isn't it as fundamental as you go through MCP to have them reconcile it? I, I would think. Me too. I just... I just yeah, I just found that a little just odd to me. Um, and, it, you know, it is concerning with so many new people coming to the province that, you know, that that could be a big shock to somebody, like, seeing a bill like that, you know. That could that could be a bad start to their whole, whole day, you know, getting a bill like that in the mail. <laughs> 100%. There's actually jurisdictions in the country that send you a bill, not for you to pay, but so that you can wrap your mind around how much health care costs. I think one such jurisdiction is in Sudbury, if I'm not mistaken, in Ontario. You'll get a bill annually that says, yeah. here's your interaction with health care, just so people understand the fact that nothing's free in this world, including health care. But I would imagine if you call MCP and say, well, yeah. you know, explain what happened, they'll probably be able to reconcile that bill for you. Oh, yeah, 100%. And you know what, Patty? I'm just going to tell you, a visit to the emergency room, $297. A chest x-ray, $347. So there's some there's some numbers. Big price tags. Right? Yep. <laughs> well, you have yourself a wonderful day and love the show. I appreciate the time. Let me know if this gets uh, sorted out. I will. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, I think MCP should be able to deal with that. Okay, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.